Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotic. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Marklin and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit TheReptileReport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad. It also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buy and selling? Use shipyourreptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. another episode of Morelia Python Radio. On tonight's episode, we're stepping outside of the Morelia box. Well, sort of. Uh, we will be no, talking no, about... 
<laughs> no, we'll be talking about Blue Tongue Skinks with our good friend Zach Bias from Legs, yeah. <clears throat> Dark Side Exotics. Um, he's going to do basically an introduction to Blue Tongue Skinks for us Python aficionados. Uh, we're going to be hitting on natural history, basic husbands, husbandry, uh, touch on some breeding, and uh, maybe some morphs. Um, I think the one thing that Zach has often told me is how parallel the Taliqua genus is to the Morelia genus. So um, for all you people out there that uh, have wanted a lizard but, um, you know, uh, were afraid of uh, taking the plunge because of the um, – well, let's face it. Snakes are basically the lazy man's reptile. Would you not agree, Owen? <laughs> I would agree. Having just gotten rid of every monitor that is in my house, I would totally agree. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, moni- well, first off, monitors are um, can be dangerous, and they have to eat every day and all of this stuff. So it, it does take a lot of work for those kinds of animals. So, you know, my snakes, I check on them every day, but necessarily I don't have to do too much, and once a week, and you know, it, 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 you're right. Snakes are definitely the lazy guy uh, reptile, and I've heard my lizard friends say that numerous times to me. So, yeah, it's yeah. so true. <laughs> it is, um, and I don't care. So, but yeah, but um, yeah, it, it should be very cool. Um, these, this is a species uh, I said uh, a while back that um, I've always kind of been interested in them, but never really enough to say uh, want to keep them until when mm-hmm. Zach went away and, uh, you know, I had to go over and check on his reptiles and I had the opportunity to sort of uh, check them out, um, you know, on my own, so to speak. Um, yeah. They were really uh, pretty cool animals. Um, that's, and that's he's got pretty good... <laughs> yeah, exposure from you have the exposure from somebody. They let you play with the animal, and then you're like, "Huh, they're not so bad." And then you start doing research on your own. Which have you done the research on your own yet? Have I? Obviously. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously. Yeah. So and then the next step is you're going to buy one, and then you try the the next step. And if you like it, you end up buying a few more, or you stay at one and you just keep that one, and you know. Yeah, so yeah, you're well on your way. I, I bet you have a stink in the next, like, four months. Four months? <laughs> yeah. This uh, is when you tell me it's ordered and it'll be here tomorrow. So it's like... <laughs> it's yeah, I, I prefer the... Uh, well, this is going to be a shocker to everybody, but I kind of like the Australian um, ones. As My God! The Indonesian yeah. ones. <laughs> So <laughs> I I don't know what to think anymore. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> clearly, clearly that's just the continent. If I, I should really just start finding things that are in Australia and try to get you interested because you'll probably just buy them. You know, it's really cool bugs <laughs> from Australia. Like, yeah, look I'll at buy the it. Mantises from Australia. You're like, ah, I know that. Very cool. Um, we got to take care um, some business before we uh, before we get pumping here with Zach, but. Uh, what uh, I guess I always ask after you come back from the show, how was Hamburg? Hamburg was good. It was uh, <laughs> well, no, it really wasn't. <laughs> but, uh, oh. <laughs> that's good. Uh, I just remembered, but it's like Hamburg was a good show. It was like because you forget when you have a good show and you sell some animals and move some stuff, you forget the small thing. And of course, the small thing was is that I was a complete idiot. 
and broke every single rule I've told all you guys to do when going to a snake show. And I forgot the keys to my acrylics at the house. So I set up the table, and I realized, because one of the snakes had pooped on the way over, that I couldn't get any of the snakes out of their displays. So um, after panicking for at least 10 minutes, um, I started asking all the other reptile friends that we got there, you know, Howard, Jamie, Jason. And it's funny because every single one of them was like, you know, if I had brought my other truck here today, I would have had, like, bolt cutters and a torch. And I'm like, and you didn't bring that one, did you? No, no, I brought my car today. And I'm like, God. Ah, it's like the universe is punching you repeatedly in the face, Hero. And so I finally took a Leatherman, which normally I have in my display case too. So where the hell that is? Um, right. And broke the security lock because there's a on my displays. There's this sliding acrylic bar on the back that locks right. my displays in the doors in place, so they can't slide open. I broke every single one of the sliding uh, bars in the back so that I could open up my displays, and now they won't lock. So, Oh, jeez. Well, I guess that means looks you have like to I'm buy getting, new displays, right? It looks like I'm getting new displays. <laughs> I, I kind of wanted new, I wanted new ones anyway, and now oh, I well. have a major excuse to do it. So yes. luckily, luckily the next show is until February, so I have until late February. So I have time and uh, all that fun stuff, but it's like, and Jamie uh, did take uh, one of the bars home with him because he's going to try to find a way to create the, uh, the security bar because that's the only part that's broken on the acrylics. So he's going to try to recreate that so that I can repair them and that they will be functional again so that I can then sell them as used acrylics and not have to worry about it. But, yeah, probably just going to get new ones anyway. <laughs> but it, that was that was part of the show. But the other yeah. part was that we sold a few animals, and I got a little captive, born and bred baby girl, gold face whitelip, and she's so tiny, sweet. <laughs> she's like her head's the size of your thumbnail, and you're like, I forget that you guys turn into like eight foot holy terrors that want to murder the world. So it's like, you know, <laughs> yay! <laughs> wow. Right now it's yay, but well, that's other cool. than that, it was it was a fun show. Great talking to everybody. Uh, I, I had fun talking to Howard, Jason, Jamie, uh, Amanda. Everybody there was really cool to talk to. I met a few people from the show uh, who, who said that they listened. That's awesome. I sold some people their first carpet python. He always loved the show, even though, you know, I, I ended up, like, costing myself $800 in 20 minutes. <laughs> it's, still, it's still a good show. It's still a win, so, right? Uh, yeah, it's still yeah. a win. Win in Owen's book. It's, Sad win, but it's a win. So, okay. yeah, it was a fun show. Well, that's cool. Uh, that's good. Uh, people and, asked uh, about you, and I. People asked about you, and I said that it wasn't as you. You were, you were far too high end to come down from your throne for a mere Hamburg show. Oh and wow! But yeah, I did it with that tone of voice the entire time too. Well, well, so. way for people to really, uh, really like me. <laughs> <laughs> good job. Yeah, I paint. I paint horrible pictures of you when I'm left alone. So. Yeah, I see this. I see this. Okay, very good. Um, <laughs> the one thing, uh, the other thing I want to hit on before we get Zach on here is um, I don't know mm-hmm. if uh, everybody has caught this, but uh, Frederick um, has uh, put up for auction a, a captive-born 
and bred Boland's python, a male from 2015. Um, It's feeding well on rat pups and uh, doing great. Um, It's going to be, uh, basically the auction is to raise money for research of Boland pythons in the wild um, by um, Ari. Um, So all funds will go to his research. Um, The auction started, uh, will... Uh, is on now, but it ends on December 13th, um, 2015. So oh, let's see, what else does he have in there? So people uh, people are probably wondering, uh, because uh, Frederick's overseas, uh, if they can bid on it. And here's the cool thing is that you can because it could be exported and shipped to Fort Worth, Texas in the USA. And then from there, it'll make its way uh, to wherever you are you. in the States. Wow. Um, if you're over in Europe, awesome. he can uh, he will have delivery to the Ham Expo in Germany. Uh, wow. The 12th of March, 2016. Uh, so wow. there must be a ham show in March 12th. So you yeah. can pick it up there. Or uh, if you're in the States, you can get it at Fort Worth, Texas. So... If you ever had the idea of wanting to have Boland's pythons and have captive born and bred, um, you got a bid on this. Yeah. <laughs> here's a heck of a chance. Um, yeah, here's get it. I might I bid. Put I don't the... even want Boland's. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bid. Yeah, I don't Just know have, what. I mean, the, uh, I think it's up to two thousand euro. Never mind. I'm not, um, really, I'm not really fun, sure. That was a fun fantasy for five seconds, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm not really sure think, where. Uh, what, that what, reminds me, uh, Evan was at the show uh, at Hamburg, and he, he he and I talked about Bolins and Fly River turtles for like 20 minutes. It was awesome. So. Who Evan? Oh, Evan. Ah, that's cool. Yeah. What was he doing there? I don't know. He was just there, and I was really surprised to see him. But it was like, and you know, he was talking, and I and I we were talking about how we should have like. Casper into coming down for the Hamburg show, but I think he got in the day after into New York. So, right. But anyway, right. But yeah, go, okay. go get on the Bolins Python. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Um, and I guess yeah, I don't have anything else. If you do, you have anything else? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. People don't want right. to hear me talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're too low end. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, uh, I don't have kinks. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I just looked at. Uh, I don't know what they put. Up. Oh, so basically, um, you can follow us over on the NPR chat. Um, we got the mm-hmm. chat room going over there. Also, um, Zach posted up a link to bluetongueskinks.net. net. I'm going to post it over in um, the uh, what do you call it as well on the Riley uh, Python Radio Facebook page. Yes. Um, <laughs> I believe the words you were searching for. But anyway, we're also going to, if there are any pictures that we're talking about on the show, we're going to post them up on Riley Python Radio's Facebook page. If we don't get to them during the show, we will definitely make sure they're posted up after the show for anybody who's a podcast listener. Um, of course, if you are listening to this in your car, do not look at the pretty pictures of skinks because, you know, that's how accidents happen. Anyway, um <laughs> All right. So, insurance tip. Yeah, there you go. Insurance tip of the day. Zach, you are live, and we're ready to talk some blue tongue skinks. 
Hey, 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 what's up, fellas? What's going on? <laughs> Not much. Yeah, it's kind of a quiet evening, right? I'm sure we all have busy work days and uh, sitting back, chillaxing, and talk to you. Hopefully, we get to touch on a lot of things, but there's a lot to talk about. So I'm going to try cool. to keep this as deep as possible as we go through things because if not, we'll never get done. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I doubt we're going to get it all in the first swing anyway. I mean, there's way there's way too much here. Mm-hmm. But let's get started anyway. Um, Zach, what drew you to work with Blue Tongue Stinks anyway? Because you did you have... I mean, you were mainly a snake guy before you started dipping into these things, right? Actually, it's quite the opposite. Um, I started keeping uh, blue tongues almost 10 years ago. Um, You know, I was keeping... That was when I started getting really serious about the hobby. It was about 10 years ago, right out of high school, Um, essentially. uh, Before then, I was keeping anything I could get my hands on, you know, um, Mm. the geckos or or whatever. and I stumbled upon Blue Tongue Skinks. Uh, I think I was reading that Reptiles magazine. They had a an ad with with a, a lady holding a Blue Tongue Skink, and I was just, like, floored by this animal. And she was kind of cute, too. I forget what ad that was, but it was pretty good. <laughs> so uh, I, remember, I remember the Blue Tongue in there, and, and it was such a cool animal because it looked real hefty and had, a, you know, tongue sticking out, bright, bright blue tongue. And it just kind of, I don't know, captured me. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And, you know, I said, all right, I really need to get into these guys. And upon further research, you know, I found BlueTongueSkins.net, which a lot of people have kind of used that as their starting point to becoming Blue Tongue aficionados. It's kind of mm-hmm. where most people have started. It's been, you know, this website has been around for a long time. I know Zach is, is the one who started it, not this Zach, but another Zach. Um, and, it's just been a community has grown so much, and there's a lot of information on there. Some of it's outdated, but a lot of it is is pretty good. And um, so I I kind of just obsessed over his website and uh, got my first blue tongue, uh, a northern from Andrew Syke. And at the time I was talking to Andrew a lot. Uh, he's probably one of the you know old timey uh, blue tongue gurus of of the country. And um, you know, he was, you know, he kind of took me on his wing a little bit, showed me a lot about, you know, different lines. And I was really into, I was like a purist from the start, you know, I was really into all the crazy lines I was working with and, and everything else. So, um, you know, I, I got quite a collection of Northerns. I had them for a few years. And then uh, when kind of, you know, school kind of got too crazy, I had to let go of all of them. And so mm-hmm. about two years there in the middle, I wasn't keeping any blue tongues. And then right after school, I got a few more. I got another one, another northern, just because I felt like I needed one again. And at the time, mm-hmm. I started keeping pythons again. And then, yeah, it kind of snowballed from there. And now I have 13 of these things. And, um, yeah. <laughs> snowballed a little bit. Kind of just, yeah. Snowballed a little bit. You know, after I realized, oh, okay, so I don't really need to do half the things I used to do when keeping blue tongues, you know. A lot of my husbandry had changed as my in general and reptile, my understanding of reptile physiology has changed since, you know, 10 years ago. So I keep them much different than I was keeping them. And they're better off for it, to be honest. Um, any of the issues I was seeing before, I don't see anymore. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, well, I guess we're going to touch on that as well. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, that's how I got into them. They're just, you know, they're like the perfect size. Um, <laughs> not too small. You know, you don't feel like you're going to break the things, you know. 
Um, <laughs> you know, so they're you know not, anywhere not from about you know anywhere from like the small like well the smallest one is the pinguin, but we're not going to really talk about those much today. Uh, but the biggest, you know, it could be up to thirty inches, but you know most of that half of that being a tail on the big marukes, and then you're looking at you know somewhere around between sixteen to twenty four is usually the the range. 16 being like cannabars and stuff. But, you know, not a too big of an animal. Um, but something really hardy, not fast, is not going to bolt and run under your, you know, your bed or under your uh, refrigerator or something like that. It's going to sit still, generally relaxed animals, not very aggressive. And all these things are pluses. And then on top of that, you have an animal that is crazy easy to take care of and super hardy. And so it was really a no-brainer for me. Well, wow, like this is the best pet reptile ever. And I still hold that after keeping everything up since then. I still believe that's the case. Um, well, and I will argue. I, I will argue with anybody. So <laughs> you, you, you've done that because I remember uh, on our trips to Tim, trips to Tinley Park because you've been barking up this ink tree for at least as long as I've known you. Um, right. <laughs> you 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 said that you think that. Morelli keepers, you know, should be involved in these animals and that most Morelli keepers will be drawn to this animal. Why do you think that is? And why do you think so many of them have joined you kind of? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's crazy. Recently, in the last, probably the last six months, I, I swear, everybody around me has just been picking these animals up. Uh, mm-hmm. Morelia guys especially and and. It just really just makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, these animals come from the literally the same place you'll find a, a you know a carpet or you know a condo or whatever. You will find a corresponding blue tongue that pretty much lives in the same area. Um, and so that's kind of you know we're all obsessed with Australia. Um, you know so anything that comes there we automatically have an affinity for. And then on top of that you have something that is easy to take care of. And so you know. Really, guys, snake guys in general are pretty lazy. I mean, hello, I'm a part of that group as well. So, you know, we don't want something that we have to feed every day necessarily, something that, you know, we have to clean every day, that, you know, insects and all that stuff. We want something that's easy, and these guys are that. And plus, they're, they're badass, man. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's a few reasons why I think, uh, and the, you know, crazy color regions, uh, I think I counted 15 subspecies and species. I mean, that's a lot. Um yeah, that's wow. right. So when yeah. so when somebody says blue tongue, you know, it's like okay, which one? There's <laughs> fifteen of them. <laughs> you know, like which one are you referring to? Shingleback. Okay, well there's four subspecies of shinglebacks. Which one are you referring to? Um so there's a lot there to dig in and then on top of that, you throw in localities, forget it. You're looking at, you know, dozens of different, you know, different things you could collect. So I think Morelia guys are collectors. You know, that's why you like Morelli because it's such a large genus that this kind of fits the same thing. You know, you could get a pair of each and, you know, you get a pair of each, you have 30 animals, right? So, like, there's a lot Holy to crap. work with. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so there's a lot to play with. And uh, they come from different areas so you can tailor, you can find the right blue zone for your situation, which is also kind of cool. You know, if you keep indoor animals, you know, you keep chondros and, and IGs and stuff, huh? maybe the indoor animals will be better for you. If you keep diamonds, hey, blotch will be right up your alley. So, you know, there's always a corresponding skink for anybody who is interested. If you like scrubs, you're going to love tanner bars, guarantee you. <laughs> 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 you 
You know, we're going to love those imported Indonesian animals. Believe me, you're going to love them. <laughs> when you see that thing flying out of the tub coming at you, then yeah, you're you're going to you're going to know why. Um, this is kind of uh, off topic for a second, but I'm just curious since you're saying that with the Indonesian animals, are Halmaheras uh, difficult to breed in captivity? Uh huh. Yep. Yes, <laughs> How about that? Actually, I don't. Yeah. I don't really know. I know some people are producing Indonesians. I I can't really tell you if there's a lot producing Harris. Not that I know it. I believe that there's. They have been produced before. I believe they've been produced in Europe. Um, but yeah, they're not easy to to breed. None of the Indian species are pretty easy to breed, other than Maroochs, which happen to breed like IJs. So there you go. IJs, <laughs> IJ uh, carpets. So right. So again. This is the similarities are quite apparent. Once you start looking into these things, you're like, oh my god, like this this all makes a lot of sense. And um, you know, even pattern wise, they're kind of similar. Where you know they both get eaten by birds, so you would think that they'll both have similar patterns. Um, so again, they're they're just super cool. They're legged, you know, python like animals in a way. You know, they're slow moving, slow metabolism, so they're easy to feed. That's what they yeah, but Halmaharas for sure tend to be, you know, on the hard of the breed side. And actually, hardest to keep side as well. Um, huh. Yeah, and we'll get into that, I guess, when we talk about the Indonesian animals. Uh, Indonesian sure. animals tend to be a little more finicky than than the Australian counterparts, just like with the carpets or with the Morelia or with anything else, really. Um, and that's really to do with their hydration needs and things like that. So, you know, again... Very similar. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, so uh, I guess we're going to try to break down this uh, genus and uh, yep. sort of um, hit on what it's comprised of. Um, I guess we'll start with the uh, the Northerns. Um, are, are they the most popular in the states as of right now? Yeah, let's um yeah, I guess we could yeah, let's start with the northerns. I was gonna try to break it up a little bit different than the than the website has it, but yeah, we can start there. All right, go for it. Go, however you <laughs> yeah, want to do only, it. Man. Only because, <laughs> do whatever only you because want. the northern <laughs> only because the website we're using as a reference today for everybody to follow along. Uh, doesn't uh-huh. take them up into their subspecies, so um like northerns are related to easterns which are related to, you know, Tanabar, so you know, I'd rather have those kind of groups up together. But uh so just gotcha. to make it easier right. on me so I remember it all. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I think we're just going to start with the Westerns then. Uh, they are, hands down, my favorite of the Australian species. Um, they are Taliqua occipitalis. They come from the western, the southwestern part of Australia. So you're looking at Perth mostly, like in and around Perth, um, kind of extend up further in the western Australian area and then over into uh, south Australia. Um, the no, the no longer plain in there, and then all the way down to Adelaide. They're found in Adelaide, and all the way up to so like in, um, like inland areas. So you know your Marley Darling and um, into Victoria and parts of New South Wales as well. Um, they they are really really cool. They are the coolest. Um, they're about an average size blue tongue. You look at the, what makes them really cool is they have this really deep black eye stripe. Um, on their eyes, and a black nose, most of them do anyway, and have really nice solid banding going down their backs between uh, like a dark chestnut color 
uh, chocolate brown, and then alternating between that and like a cream to yellow color. They're incredibly beautiful. Um, they're probably my favorite. Just aesthetically, they look gorgeous. Some of them can be really banded, and then you have some that kind of have this reticulated look where they have more of like a reticulated uh, finite pa- pattern, and those are pretty cool too. And um, now they're just really neat. Um, they're, they're not they're not even too common in Australia, but I know that they're definitely more common than they are here. Um, and uh, I don't actually know of anybody who actually keeps occipitalis, at least publicly, here in the United States. Um, I'm sure they're here. I'm pretty sure they're here. But I don't know of anybody who is at least public about them having them or, you know, anything like that. So they're kind of that enigma that everybody wants real bad. I think a few were, they, like, you'll see a few for sale from Europe into the United States, like on Kingsnake or whatever, like for sale going into the United States. And there'll be insane prices, like eight grand a pair or something crazy. And, and oh, you'll never ow. know. You, yeah, you'll never know what happens to those animals. Like, they just, most likely they did come over, but you don't know who has them, you know. And and most likely they're not coming from the the most reliable resources, you know. It's probably some smuggled animals, to be truthful. Um, right. <laughs> the Germany uh, portal. <laughs> yeah, the, oh, yeah exactly. the, the portal. The, from, the portal yeah. that is Germany. Right. Yeah. So, which is the portal that is Hong Kong, but we're not going to get into all that. But you know, <laughs> there is a quite a lie. Portal of names. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. Do you know there is boats and things can go on boats and they can go into harbor? You know that, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. yeah, stuff gets out, and that's the truth of it. So I don't think we'll see some uh, available yet. I think whoever does have them, I'm sure somebody's working on it, you know, is going to hold back whatever they produce because they do not produce a lot of babies. Uh, they produce anywhere from, uh, you know, like 7 to 10 kind of offspring, kind of smaller litters when you talk about blue tongues. So they're not going to you know, take over the world. They only produce once a year, so. And that kind of goes with all blue tongues. All blue tongues produce babies once a year. They're very seasonal. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not going to find blue tongues breeding all year round. It just doesn't happen. Now, their seasons can be shorter or longer, depending on on species, but, and they could be either in the winter or spring breeders. Um, I guess just like Morelia or pythons are. So, you know, it's, they're not something that you're going to be pumping out. So there's nothing, they're not like a gecko where you're going to have like, you know, 10 clutches a year of two eggs or whatever. You're going to have one litter a year from your females, um, if you're lucky, right? Um, right. Which is another reason why I don't think that we see a lot of this rarer stuff too often. And usually the animals we do get are older um, animals that, you know, are honestly probably way too fat, but that's another story. But um breed. So, um so that's why we haven't seen these animals um, too often, I think. Um, and so you have those. Um, in general, natural history of all blue tongues, you look at a ground-dwelling animal that's roughly about 20 inches to 20, you know, about two feet long, a little bit less, a majority of them. Um, you have shorter legs, short legs, uh, round stocks, you know, um, stocky bodies, big heads compared to their body size. Um, they do not have sharp teeth, but they have crushing teeth, um, usually for eating things like snails and uh, insects and things. They're very tough muscles. Their their jaw pressure is, is actually quite significant. Um, not very fast animals, although we have all seen videos of them kind of scurrying about. They could go pretty quick, but, you know, they're not meant for speed. Um, and the reason why their tongues are blue is for a defensive 
measure. They'll stick that blue tongue out. It surprises the whoop, the predator, hopefully, and they'll be able to slip away as the predator is kind of shocked about this. You know, blue is not a very common color in the wild, and so anything that flashes that color is automatically seen as kind of um, shocking. And so most predators will hopefully have enough time for the blue tongue can scurry down a hole or, you know, take off or whatever. Um, they will also huff and puff and hiss and put on quite a threat display to protect themselves. And, and for their first mode of defense is camouflage. Their second mode of defense is their bluff. And then after that, you know, it's it's down and dirty, you know, whatever they can do to, to defend themselves. So that's why usually they're not very aggressive. If you're going to have an aggressive animal, the odds of them biting you is very low. They're not a very bitey type animal, which makes them a great pet. Um, and they're leaf litter type dwellers. They stay on the ground, stay in cover. Um, most most days out of the year, they will bask in the morning and usually bask at night and uh, right before the sun goes down at most. Um, like most reptiles, they're most active in early morning and, and later in the day because in Australia, that middle part of the day is way too hot. And so they are mm-hmm. spending most of their time either on the ground or, you know, on their leaf litter and staying cool. So their most active period is going to be in the morning generally. Um, now, we look at the Indonesian animals as something a little bit different. They're more active all day long because their temperature is a little more stable in Indonesia. Right. And that also correlates to animals in captivity as well. There's a difference in that, in their activity levels, and even throughout the year. You know, um, Indonesian animals tend to be active all year round. They tend to slow down a little bit, but active all year round. Well, the other guys, you know, will really shut down brewmate um, for the winter. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of a natural history. Uh, they eat anything. That's one thing that makes them kind of awesome pets is that they will literally eat anything you put in front of them. Um, I've never seen a blue tongue not eat something I put in front of it, except maybe what a lot of people try to feed their blue tongues, which is a lot of greens and vegetables and things, and they really don't prefer that. Um, they will eat it if they need to, but they generally stay away from that. And in the wild, it's the same thing. They're mostly looking for insects in the leaf litter, any kind of small um, vertebrates. You know, they're looking for small, uh, you know, baby snakes, baby lizards, you know. They're looking for anything they can get their hands on, and they pretty much overpower it, crush it, and eat it. Um, You know, my guys have eaten, you know, dead-in-the-egg carpet pythons, um, you know. So these are the type, you know, and that's stuff that if they'll find a baby carpet in the wild, absolutely they'll tear it up and eat it, you know. They can totally do that. Um, so they're quite interesting. Uh, they'll eat any kind of amphibian they find. I mean, literally anything they find, they'll eat. They're, they have been there to eat um, uh, roadkill. They'll see them by roadkill, chewing on some, you know, dead kangaroo or something. Um, <laughs> they're known to they're known to raid uh, people's yards for dog food bowls. Like if you leave your dog food out, um, you often find you know, often we'll see blue tongues eating on your dog's food bowl. Um, so they're opportunistic, and so they'll eat whatever they can. Um, and that kind of feeds into their dietary needs, which I will get into in a little bit. But anyway, I want to throw that out there before I start going into each specific, specific one. That's kind of the overall um, natural history of these animals, is that they're mm-hmm. leaf litter-dwelling, ground-dwelling animals that will eat anything they get a hand on. And, um, yeah. So cool. that is Westerns also, uh, just... They're really cool. I can't wait to get one one day, or at least see one. I have never seen one in person. You know, hopefully one day I'll get to. Um, maybe we'll go to Australia. Who knows? But they are yeah, super, find one. 
They are super, super cool. They are really neat. Um, after that, I guess we're going to hit on Centralians because they are quite similar to the Westerns. And these are probably, between the Westerns and the Centralians, these are probably people's second favorite or first favorite. People love these guys. Um, and they are uh, Trilico Multifasciata. Um, these guys are really neat. They're, they're a shorter, stockier of the Blue Thongs. Um, they have a really wide head. Really deep black uh, temporal stripe, eye stripe that goes from uh, their eye back to their ear. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a nice, rich red color on their back uh, with uh, orange stripes. And then they have um, kind of this white on the sides, and, and then the tail kind of fades out. Um, nice yellow heads. They're, they're just gorgeous, gorgeous animals. And their proportions are quite interesting. Um, uh, it, they're just kind of like this stocky, you know, fat kid in school, you know, kind of look. <clears throat> you know, they actually, in terms of their body mass is quite large, and their legs are actually quite small um, compared to other blue tongues. They're, they're quite interesting. And uh, something unique about them is most blue tongues, when they stick their tongue out to uh, absorb any kind of smells, they just stick, you know, stick it out, stick it back in. Well, these guys actually wag their tongues just like a snake does which is actually kind of funny to look at, but they will wag their, their tongue. Um, really? And they're the only they're the only subspecies that does this. Why? Uh, not too sure. They do come from quite hot deserts, and maybe the, mm-hmm. the tongue wagging helps in, in to collect more scent particles in the air because maybe it's harder to find food. Um, so that could be maybe a possibility. Uh, but that is something that is kind of unique to them. Uh, they come from the red sands of, of you know, actually they're they're – range is actually quite large from the the northern half of the western, western Australia all the way through the Northern Territory all the way into Queensland. Quite a big territory these guys cover. Um, and they're just, they're just really neat animals. They have a low, low uh, they, don't, they don't produce that many babies. You know? um, so they have a, a low fecundity. But, uh, so they're kind of neat. I do know that they are in the States. Um, actually, uh, Brian Barczyk of BHB um, actually had, I think either was a pair or a trio. I'm starting to think it was a trio he had at uh, Finley. I think he recently, really? recently picked them up. Yeah, he recently picked them up. I was able to see them there. I wasn't able to hold them or anything, but I did see them there. And, um, he recently picked them up, and they're quite cool. Um, now, they looked... The ones he got, looked, I, I don't know where he got them from, but they look to be older animals, you know. So, you know, we'll see how he does with them. I wish him all the best because, you know, the better everybody does, the more chance I get to get one, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I wish him the best. But it, but they, they did look like quite an old pair and they were quite overweight. So, um, you know, I hope he's kind of putting them on a, quite a quite a weight loss plan. Or Crash I, diet. I, yeah, because yeah, I think that's, again, we're going to get into this, but, Obesity is a huge problem in blue tongue skins, and um, you combine obesity with, you know, not a feeding cycle, you know, not a cooling cycle like they should, and you have a fat animal that doesn't want to breed. You know, we see this, we see this constantly, and we'll, you know, we see it in pythons all the time, and we're going to continue to see it in any reptile or any animal in the world that we breed. You have something that's fat and lazy, you're not going to have, it's not going to breed for you. And uh, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I wish them the best on those. Um, they they are quite beautiful. And, uh, they're they're really cool. So they are here in the states, and uh, they're neat. I think a lot of people consider them their favorites. So they're pretty cool. Uh, after that, we're gonna. Uh, I guess we're gonna talk about blotched. So 
so watch flutons. I know these are the what I consider the diamond bivalves of uh, of flutons. They live in the most southern areas of of any bluetong. Um They range from uh, really New, New South Wales down to Victoria and all the way down to actually Tasmania, the only bluetong that lives in Tasmania. They just live on the northern strip of Tasmania because anywhere else is just too cold there. But they are they are in Tasmania, and, and as such, they, there's really kind of like three different phases of looks of um, blotched bluetongs and and um, you know, you have the alpines. The alpine blue tongues that uh, blotched are the ones most people are familiar with. They have a lot of high black on their backs, and they have the rosettes of orange on their backs, which is, you know, orange or pink. They're beautiful, beautiful. And some people consider these to be the most beautiful of the blue tongues. And they have nice yellow jowls, yellow bellies, um, some nice yellow tipping all throughout the body, just gorgeous face. Um, then you have the lowlands, which are a little more, they're more beige and brown, um, you know, not as high contrast as the alpines are. And, um, you know, it kind of makes sense. You have, a, you know, you have a group of animals that live maybe lower down in elevation. They're going to be, you know, they don't need to be as, to absorb as much sun uh, because it's not as cold. Like the alpines will be higher up in elevation. It's colder up there. They need to be darker to absorb more sunlight. That sort of thing. So it makes sense. And then the Tasmanians are actually really weird. They have this orange, orange head, like a nice orangey head. Um, sometimes they have really orange heads, so many extreme uh, variations. And they have like this almost this olive green, you know, olive drab type type of look, khaki look to their bodies. And so they're really neat. They're probably my favorite uh, locality of, of the blotched would be the um, Tasmanians. Super super cool animals. Yeah, they're pretty neat looking. Jeez. Yeah, there there's something there's something cool. You know, those blotches are, are really, really neat. Um and of course these guys live, you know, where very cold. They could get they could take very cold tolerances, so um which is important to them breeding because they're gonna need quite quite a deep um a deep cool down in order for them to breed successfully in captivity. Um I know that uh, King Lancey, he's, he's having some good success with them. I know he has a, a few. I know that Jeff um, has some. Uh, so there's a few people who, who who have the Alpines and are doing quite well with them. Um, and so there there's a few that float around every year. There'll be a few for sale. They're not cheap, nor they should be, I guess, you know, um, because maybe you'll get maybe five or six available every year. So they're kind of they're kind of expensive, but they're around. They're around. I got to I got to hold one a few uh, a few months ago at Hamburg, uh, not at Hamburg at, at White Plains. So I met up with Diana over there, Diana Manson. And was able to hang out with her. Uh, she just purchased um, a blotch, and they're phenomenal. Really, really cool animals. Gorgeous, gorgeous animals. Cool. All right. So after the blotch, uh, we're gonna go to shingles, which is actually quite a big group, believe it or not. Um, there's four subspecies of shinglebacks. Um, the main subspecies being Telequa rugosa rugosa. Then you have Telequa aspera. Uh, uh, excuse me, Telequa rugosa aspera. Uh, then you have the Shark Bay shingleback, which is uh, Telequa rugosa polara. And then lastly, you have the Rottnest Island shingleback, which is uh, Telequa rugosa canoe. Um, so you have four different Subspecies there. Um, the common shingleback or rugosa rugosa 
is um, it's pretty large. It's there. They have a little bit of a longer kind of um, uh, proportions. Nice big heads. Their tails are relatively slender compared to the others, uh, especially compared to Sparrow. Um, and they're you know in per, they're in and around Perth as most of their range. Um, and they're they're beautiful. You know the gold fields have you know nice bright orange. And these these guys probably have the nicest color of all the shinglebacks. You know, brilliant orange, gorgeous, high contrast blacks and whites and creams. I mean, just beautiful, beautiful animals. Um, and then you know then you have the sparrow, which is the so it goes so like most and more stick to the to the western side of, of Australia, and then you have the the sparrow, which is on the um, the eastern side. And sparrow. What most people see as shinglebacks, they're the ones that, you know, have a really fat pine cone-like tail. Uh Um, They tend to be really dark. They range anywhere from, you know, uh, into Victoria all the way up. Actually, that's quite a large range. Um, They have the largest range of any of the the shinglebacks all the way down from uh, Victoria all the way up to Queensland. They come in different varieties and different uh, localities and, and some of the localities being quite large and some of them being quite small. Um, and they're usually quite dark. Some some white flecking on the side and it kind of bleeds up. And maybe some white, faint white stripes on the back. Um, they're they're really cool uh, animals. They're, they're probably my favorite in the shingles. Uh, maybe islands are better, but let's see. And then you have <laughs> the shark bays. Uh, the shark bays are, there's, there's a bay that's north of Perth. They call it the okay. Shark Bay, I guess, because a lot of sharks visit this bay. And in and around this bay is uh, a subspecies of, of shingleback. They're, they're somewhat isolated from, well, they are isolated from the regular Rigosa. And they tend to have a pointier tail. It's almost like a carrot tail, long, thinner, thinner tail than the other shinglebacks. Other than that, they're pretty much just the same as regular Rigosa, Rigosa. Um, so people like to argue that they're not even a subspecies, so it depends on who you ask. And then right off of Perth, you have a tiny island, uh, the Rottnest Island. And um, there's actually a, a group of shinglebacks that live there, and they are the Rottnest Island shinglebacks, or Rogosa Kanoe. And what's cool about these guys is olive drab look, and some of, them, some of the best examples of these guys are like olive green, like a green shingleback. They're incredible, incredible animals. Huh. And they're definitely... You know they're definitely unique, not not often seen, definitely never seen in the United States. Um, until you know everybody loves these guys. They're like you know I guess I guess if shingles would be the pinnacle, these guys would be the pinnacle of the pinnacle. Like if that makes sense, <laughs> in the top top of the line, people would kill somebody for these things. Uh, they're amazing, amazing, amazing animals, and they just live on that little island. Um, so, yeah, so that's shinglebacks in and out of its hole. They're, they're really cool animals. You know, they have the, the big, large armor, like plate scales um, that cover their whole body. Um, their, their metabolism is very slow. Um, they, call the, they call them the lazy lizard, and it makes sense if, if you ever meet one. Um, they're not quick to move. <laughs> they're actually quite, <laughs> to be honest, quite boring. Like, I, I really love shingles, and you know, I've been lucky to be around quite a few shingles, um, and they are actually quite boring. They'll just sit there and not do a thing for hours and hours and hours. And (laughs) 
You know, just like a snake. <laughs> right. Yeah. That is super lazy, and that factors into what you know how why people are having breeding problems with them is they're lazy breeders as well. So it's hard to get them kind of in the mood. And I think a lot of long time this idea that you know they they pair for life and all this type of thing. I think that that's kind of I think most people are realizing that's maybe not the truth, or it is it is kind of there's some truth to it, but not necessarily. Um, if you have shinglebacks and you have a pair and you keep them together all year round and you cycle them low but not too low, you're not really getting them in the mood to to do the dibby. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The dibby. You're not doing it. So what people are finding is by introducing a third male, you're kind of getting the hormones going and. So I think a lot of people are having more success by using multiple males with the female, kind of switching them in, switching them out, getting that first male kind of jived up and upset. You know, we do the same thing with carpet, so too lazy to breathe. You know, competition is going to cause that one male to do his business. So it helps the situation. So we're starting to learn that a little bit better. And we've actually had some quite a bit of success in, in the States recently. I know that, um, that Casey Lasik produced some shinglebacks this year. I know that um, Jeff produced shinglebacks last, oh, wow. last year or the year before. So shinglebacks are oh. out there. They're being produced in the United States. The issue is nobody's going to give them up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they have one, two babies. Yeah. If you're super-duper lucky, we'll have three babies. But even that is, like, you know, ridiculously unlucky to have three babies. So people keep them. I would keep them. I would never yeah. let them go. So. Yeah. yeah, and they're the ultimate pet, and so, yeah, they're, so, don't expect to be drowned with shinglebacks anytime soon. Most of the shinglebacks you'll see outside of Australia generally are not bred. You have a lot of shinglebacks in in Europe, but I, let's be serious, they're most likely have come into the pet trade in quite illegal ways. Mm. Um, so, you know. Not saying whoever keeps shinglebacks in, in Europe is, is, is a problem, but you know, if you trace those things back far enough, you'll be surprised when you find yourself. So um, <laughs> just because you're not bred, so when you see like when you see like twenty shinglebacks or something being sold over here in Europe, you're like, but nobody's breeding them much. Like, mm, well, together, it kind of makes sense. So uh, yeah, but they're out there. They're they're super cool. Um, and I guess after that, where are we at? Right, we're going to go to the Northern Clade. Um, so we're going to talk about the employees. So, so you have this group of animals, a uh, group of uh, blue tongues, uh, the species, and broken up to some sub, sub, subspecies. Um, north and to the northeastern part of Australia. All right. So your first one is you have your eastern. Um, your easterns have quite a large range. They range all the way up to the tip of, of Cape York, all the way down to the bottom of Victoria and Melbourne. Melbourne. So you can see, like, literally the the eastern coast of Australia. They're from the north to the south, all the way up the coast. And as a result, they have a lot of variability, as you can imagine. Um, <clears throat> to me, they remind me a lot of, of, of you know, our coastal carpets uh, because of how far ranging they are, that right. you're going to have a lot of variation in that. So, you know, in New South Wales, you have you have Easterns that have a lot of black pigment on them, a lot of dark pigment. They got the really predominant uh, eye stripe on their on their eyes, uh, temporal streaks. 
And, you know, these are the ones most sought after in the United States because these are the rarest of the Easterns in the United States. Um, so, and they're, to me, they're the most beautiful because they have the most contrast. They're really cool. And that ice stripe, you can't beat it. Um, so they kind of extend all the way up. And then there's a little break um, in the Gulf of uh, Carpentaria. There's a break between them and then you go into your northern. So your northerns are looking at, you're looking at anywhere between the Kimberleys, uh, Barclays, Tablelands, and, you know, Darwin area. You know, that's where the northerns are. And the northerns are considered the largest of the blue tongues, definitely the right. heaviest body, large, you know, big heads, big bodies, just very large skinks. Um, and they're gorgeous. They have black and, and orange portholes down their, down their sides. Um, they usually have a quite a clear and uh, clean head clean front legs, um, and their back pattern really does kind of freckle out all the way down. And you have the extreme version of that, which is kind of your Kimberly um, locality northerns, which have like almost like somebody just peppered their whole top of their bodies, including their head, with like this pepper speckling all the way down. Gorgeous, gorgeous. They're probably, in terms of localities, they're probably my favorite blue localities. It's going to be the Kimberly northerns. They're just incredible. The Northerns are probably the most commonly bred blue tongue. Well, they are the most commonly bred blue tongue outside, outside, of, um, outside of Australia. Um, and they are the quintessential blue tongue when most people get them. Uh, they're readily available generally. And uh, there's just been, there's quite a few, I'd say, uh, lines of, of Northerns. Um, you, know, you have your Carmel line, which I know Ray has had. Uh, Kind of found in the Carmel line, which he's looking. They're looking to be um, T positive albinos and things like that. And then you have, you know, Andrew Sykes uh, Sunset line, which is a very famous line, which is really vibrant orange uh, northerns, and they're pretty. They're pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they have a, quite a quite a range as well in terms of looks. But generally speaking, um, when you're looking at a northern compared to an eastern, you're looking for black heavy black portholes on the side um, and a clean head. So that's kind of how you're going to, you know, tell the difference between, let's say, a northern and an eastern. And their body proportions are slightly different as well. Um, so those guys are uh, Taliqua, Sincoides, Intermediate, and those are their northern. Um, and then after that, we have we have the Tannenbars. Uh, Tanabars are actually related to the Northerns and the Easterns, even though they live on Tanabar Island. Kind of like, you know, with scrubs. Um, right. Yeah. I was just going to say scrubs, that. Yeah. Are, are more closely are related closely to related. King Horni, right? Right. Exactly. Then, then they are to the scrubs of Indonesia. And it's the same thing with, with the Tanabars. Um, you know, when the Torres Strait was filled, you know, when last Ice Age, when the Torres Strait was filled in with land, of course, you had a lot more genetic, you know, they, were, they weren't isolated. Tannenbar was not isolated. So the Sincoides got less on Tannenbar when this Torres Strait got filled in with water, of course, after the end of the last ice age. And so they got pretty much stranded there. But they are more more closely related to um, northerns and uh, easterns as well. Um, now, what's cool about Tannenbar is, uh, first of all, they're they're like one of my favorites. Their smallest of 
the main blue tongues, except the pygmy, of course, but we'll talk about that later. They're, they're small. They're ranging anywhere between 16 and 18 inches. They grow quite slowly, and they mature slowly as well. Um, uh, they have a very high sheen, very glossy scales, because they come from a place that's quite wet. Um, so the the glossier scales, if you look at reptiles in general, the glossier the scales, the more repellent they are towards water. Right. That's why. That's why when you look at a at a blood python, they're going to be way shinier than a carpet python, right? Because they're coming from totally two different areas. Um, same thing with tanabars. So tanabars are really high shine. They they usually come in two phases. You have your classic uh, silver phase, which is almost like xanic silver, white, um, maybe some beige in there, but very very silver. And then you have your yellow or gold phase, which are bright, brighter yellow, yellow on the chin. And so there's, there's two different phases of them. Um, they're, they're really neat in that they're quite, I don't want to say aggressive, but they're definitely defensive. Um, anybody who has keeps a tanner bar will tell you they're quite feisty. They are the smallest of the main, of the main blue tongues, but they are quite, they pack a punch, um, uh, you know, they have, they're very muscular for their size. Um, you know, they're like, it's like when you hold, hold them, they're like, feeling, it's like a brick. Like there's no fat there. They're, they're, they're muscle. And, you know, there's a lot of people question that. Why is that the case? Why are they so tough and everything? It's probably because they come from a tough place. And, you know, they're just badass little skinks. And uh, they're probably one of my favorites. Probably because they're so, they're so mean. But, <laughs> They they are really 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 neat, um, and so yeah they're also really they're they're employees so they're related, and I guess from there we're gonna go to um, we're gonna go what are we gonna do next I guess we're gonna touch on Erin Jaya's um, currently I guess I, and I remember uh, Nick Nick Martin having a question about he doesn't understand the difference between an Erie and Giant and Maruk or he doesn't get why there is a difference and it is tricky and I remember him saying that and it is tricky kind of a situation it doesn't really make too much sense but I'll try to explain as much as I can the difference between an Erie and Giant and a Maruk mm-hmm. so Erie and Giant okay let me see if I can explain this as well as possible alright so when Australia and Indonesia, Papua New Guinea were connected last ice age. There was um, there wasn't genetic isolation, so you had uh, interbreeding between the the Indonesian species or types and the uh, Australian types. So there was more there was a gradient going up, right, between Australia and Indonesia. Well, when okay. the Torres Strait got filled in with water, of course, at the end of the last ice age. Um, the more Sincoyese animals, the animals that are more related to the Australian animals, got stranded on the southern tip or the southern edge of Indonesia or Papua New Guinea, which happens to look a lot like the northern part of Australia. Okay. As such, they have maintained a lot of their Australian characteristics. Their stockier, hold fat in their tails, um, have stockier heads, have a pattern more closely related looking like an Eastern than it does um, uh, an Indonesian animal. And so they're kind of in this kind of weird hybridization zone or integrate zone. And so they're not quite 
employees, at least they're not, they actually are not even given um, a classification yet because of how little information about them there is. But, you know, they're not quite Indonesians, but they're not quite Australian. They're right, they sit right on that edge. Um, so, they're they're quite they're quite common. They were way more common in the past, um, right? So that's why there's a lot of in, there's a lot of IJs, older IJs being floated around there. Um, some people think they're just a hybrid of Easterns to indigenous that have been or Indonesian animals that have been sold to us. Uh, there's a lot of theories out there about what an IJ is. I personally believe that it is the last remnants of Sincoides on the island of Indonesia. Or the island of Papua New Guinea. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. So they're that they're a last stronghold, as you know, they're, they're they sit in the last band of plain grassland, like you know, you can look this far as that's where they are. Um, they're that last right. stronghold of Sincoides on that island. Um, then, Maroos, which is uh, Tilikwadigis uh, evanensis, are actually very closely related. Well, they they have some Sequoides traits, meaning that you can look at a, at a Maruk, right? You look at a Maruk, they have some Sequoides traits. They have a, a bald head, generally speaking. Bald heads are a very Sequoides trait. Um, they tend to have a lot more white on their front legs than other Gigas animals or other Indonesian animals. Um, they tend uh, not to be as humidity uh, dependent, so they are quite robust in that they can really live quite dry and they really can live quite wet. They're kind of in that intermediate zone. And and if you look at the way they range, they have a, quite a large range from southern uh, Indonesia into or southern Papua New Guinea into uh, the eastern side. So they're you know Port Moresby and Maruk. All those areas have have Maruks in them. And so what Maruks are are that natural integrate zone. Right, they sit right in the middle between uh-huh. where Sincoides was and where Gigas is. Gigas being the Indonesian type, they sit right in that middle. They skirt that line. As such, they have traits pretty much equally between Sincoides and Gigas. Maybe more leaning on Gigas, hence why they're a part of the Gigas family. But they kind of sit in that intermediate zone, um, which, in my opinion, makes them the best pets for a lot of reasons um, because they are quite tolerant when you compare them to their Indonesian brothers and sisters and cousins. And then when you compare them to their Sincoides, they don't have to brumate as deep because they kind of skirt on that middle, if that makes any sense. <laughs> right. No, I'm fine. So, you, you get me? All right. <laughs> so, that's, so that's the difference. So if you look at the difference between Maru, and, and an IJ. And IJ are going to have more Australian traits, in layman's mm-hmm. terms, Australian traits, and the Maroops are going to have more Indonesian traits. And that's how you see the difference. But what's crazy is they both can come in the same package from uh, from Indonesia imported. You know what I mean? So, like, wow. that's where the confusion oh, comes from. They're not, they don't, they don't um, identify them as two separate things, even though Everybody can see that they're clearly two separate things. Um, even you know, head scalation is different. There's a lot of differences between them, 
they're often just sitting here in a box. It's labeled as blue tongues, and so whatever comes up in the wash. So um, that's that's the confusion. That's the confusion there. And also confusion in the names. I mean, IJ, Miriam Giants, to, to kind of name this not classified animal, it's kind of vague. I mean, it's not telling anything about what the animal, where the animal really lives or, you know, it's kind of that's the whole half of the island is Irian Jai or it used to be called Irian Jai, you know, so it's not very specific. That's where right. the confusion happened. And and Milwaukee, hmm. yeah, they do live right outside of Maru, but they also extend, extend all the way to the eastern side of the island into into Port Mosby and, and beyond. So, again, just like with Condros where Marooks don't actually live in Marooks, this is the same kind of issue that we have with these guys is, is that the information is not very concrete or studied much. And so we're left with just kind of our best educated guess for what we can tell from a thousand miles away, <laughs> thousands of miles away <laughs> right. in the United States. You know, and I'm sure you guys do. I mean, you guys experience that with, with we experience that with chondros as well. We have confusion about where these animals come from and the different types and localities mm-hmm. of chondros. Same thing with the scrubs. You know, we we are, we're very confused. Like, okay, when when does you know this become that, or when when is that integrated? When you know, and nature is not that simple. Nature doesn't read a book, right? So, you know, there could <laughs> be. Lot, I was going to say, and a lot of times, like with the uh, when it comes to localities, I mean, I heard uh, Daniel Natush saying this one time about chondras. Technically, you could be in one area. You know, and mm-hmm. um, if you're on this side of the river, <laughs> you're in one locality. If you're on the other side yeah, of the yeah, river, yeah. you're on a different locality. So yeah. I guess it's how 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 um, you know right. micro locality do you want to go and that type of thing. But right, yeah. So in, in the terms of the hobby itself, we like to keep them separated so we don't muddy the water essentially. Right. Know? And and there is some you know animals coming out of coming out of um, Indonesia that look like halfway between an IJ and a Maruk, like being literally halfway. And people are like, well, we're gonna well they're Maruks, we're gonna call them the new type Maruk, or you know they'll label them something. And it's like, well, guys, you know, you don't think that somewhere in an Indonesian farm these are not all just stuck in a pen and some breeding didn't happen? Like you know like these things happen <laughs> over there. You can't sure. just like assume that there's a new locality just because it came from Indonesia and it looks slightly different from other things. You can't just start labeling things. Um, so it gets tricky. I like that's why when I look for like I want to be looking for tanna bars very soon, and we often see tanna bars coming out of Indonesia that look quite not like tanna bars. They look kind of weird, but I label tanna bars. When I look when I look to get into a new subspecies, a new species of animal, I'm looking for the quintessential animal. That animal that reads nothing but that animal because guess what? That's gonna say that's gonna help me keep those lines pure in the future. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like I don't want an IJ that kinda looks like a Maruk. Or a Maruk that kinda looks like an IJ. If I plan on yeah. reading Maruks and IJ separately, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, you want the textbook of that animal. Right. So Exactly. Yeah. I want this of this animal so that way I know at least I'm starting. Yeah, I can make that thing totally whacked out pattern wise. But I know at least I started with something that clearly is a Maruk or clearly is an IJ or clearly is a Key Island, that sort of thing. So, right. so that's the kind of Maruk-IJ controversy. Um, technically, scientifically, IJs don't exist. 
Well, I mean, whatever you want to, you know, whatever you kind of, <laughs> your view on that is your view on that. Just like Jungles don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's not, let's not dive into this. <laughs> or, or technically, if you want to look at it, you know. Stop it. I did carpets, you know. Kyle don't exist because the person who named them happens to be a douchebag. But, you know. <laughs> well, that I will drink to. <laughs> wow, yeah. reminiscent of uh, the uh, ICAST. Jeez. <laughs> right? Exactly, uh, right? Like, how's the name those animals? Like, we still use Harris and I, but let's be honest, like, uh, we we really wish somebody else would have named them. We first. really wish we didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> Really don't want to do it. So. Yeah, uh, now, so it's like the same thing, exactly. Now, do you see? Uh, uh, this is just a question in between. I mean, do you see like similar um, uh, blue tongue skinks up in the northern part of of Indonesia, or is it only in the southern part? Well, this is where we get into our next subspecies. Oh, okay. Ah, I should, oh, should have been patient. I should have been patient. That was great. Great segue. So right. almost like we planned this. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the main uh, Indonesian animals, which are Taliqua gigas gigas. So this is the founding animal, or at least the first animal that was um, classified in this group. And this is what we consider, at least in the hobby, to be the classic Indonesian um, blue tone. A lot of black on the head. A lot of black through the body, a lot of black on the legs, um, sometimes solid black legs, some of the best ones, um, peppering all throughout the back, a lot of black on the temporals, just covered in kind of this black flecking that if you look at them, would, you know, some of them actually, if you look at them, kind of look like uh, jungle carpets in a way, that kind of like yellow and black um, variation. And it makes sense. These guys live in the jungle. They live in tropical environments. It, the dappled sunlight type of thing to help with the camouflage, it makes a lot of sense. Um, these guys range all the way. They do interbreed or at least on the – because, you know, there's there's the uh, mountain range that goes through and then uh, it goes through Papua New Guinea. And so they go – not only are they on the western side of the island, um, kind of close to where Maruki is, but not quite north of that, they expand from there all the way north um, and around the mountain, actually, to be on from the southern edge of the mountain as well, um, so the, the northern edge of, of, uh, of Papua New Guinea. And then they also are on various islands throughout that part of part of Indonesia. So, you know, you, this is where the famous, you know, not the famous, but the one locality we know we do have in, in Indonesian is the Halmahera. Um, everything else, we don't really know where it's coming from, but we do okay. know that these animals are originated from Halmahera. So you can tell the difference between a Halmahera um, Indonesian and just what we consider a classic Indonesian that comes from wherever. We don't really know, but other parts of Indo. Um, and so Halmaheras do live on Halmahera Island. I guess we can kind of touch on these. These guys are really neat. Not, lots of dark black pigment um, on their legs, on their bodies, and then they have this chestnut orange on their backs, all the way down their back. It could fade out into brown as they grow older. Um, so sometimes, you know, some people don't, they're not their favorite. But, you know, I think some of of these guys are absolutely gorgeous um, because of that contrast between orange and black is so nice. Uh, 
Um, these guys also, you know, obviously come from Halmahera. And so these are actually becoming quite popular. Um, and the reason why is for some reason the last, I don't know, probably a year or so, a year or two, they've been imported like gangbusters, Halmahera. Um, why? I don't know. I don't know if there's some a new place set up in Halmahera, like a new exporter set up. I don't know the reason why. Or new collectors maybe going to Halmahera more often. Which you would think that you would see more Halmahera scrubs, if that's the case, or whatever. But it's strange uh-huh. that we're getting so many of these Halmahera blue tongues. But they're flooding the market, really. There's quite a lot of them. Um, unfortunately, what I find is that the Halmaheras are probably the hardest of the blue tongues to keep um, because they're so hydration um, dependent. They need a lot of hydration, a lot of water, and they need a lot of humidity or they will straight up get sick. Um, there's no doubt about it. There's no kind of like badges, badges, badges. I mean, they, they will get straight up get sick. But they need it. Um, and that's unfortunate because a lot of people buy this animal, stick it in a tank in their living room on, like, you know, Carefresh or Aspen bedding or, like, you know, whatever, and expect it to do just as well as a northern blue tongue will. And it's just, it just won't. It's totally two different animals coming from totally two different parts uh, or, or ecosystems. And so they just don't do well. So I try to, st- if anybody's looking to get a blue tongue, like, I try to steer them away from Halmaharas, at least for a beginner, because no, they're not easy. And, of course, they're coming to importers, so God knows what they're coming in with. You know, whatever parasite or, you know, definitely mites, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so so that's that's how, in and of itself, very cool species. Nice, bright, orange eyes, gorgeous, gorgeous animals. Um, and they're really cool. They're quite popular, but, again, they're, they're difficult to take care of. Um, this is classic. And, and I guess the last, got two more. We got the Key Islands, which... My personal favorite. My personal favorite. Love them. Love them a lot. Uh, <laughs> keys are interesting. They they come from, well, the K Islands. It's spelled slightly different. It's spelled K-A-I in Indonesian, so it's a little little different. We call Or the Key Islands or the K Islands, however you want to say it. Um, there's a little islands off the, the, the south of Papua New Guinea. Um, and they also live on Aru Islands, too, which is actually quite interesting. Um, so they they live on that area, and I think I I think that what we're getting mostly in the Key Island imports is we're getting Aru Island animals. It just makes sense to me. Why would they go to Key Island? Nothing's on those little islands other than key, you know a few blue tongues and, and some birds and stuff. There's not really much reason to go there, but there's a lot of reason to go to Aru Island, right? Right. You have condos sure. there. You have scrubs there. You have blue tongues there. There's more there. That's, you know, where they're going to go, where it's easier to collect. And I think that's why we're seeing um, at least key islands that used to come in are quite different than key islands we're seeing now, which is which is interesting. Um, if you look at bluetongueskins.net and you look at the key island page, um, you have some of these animals that are quite green, that um, their patterns have faded out quite a lot. You don't see that way too often anymore. Um, you get more of the types that are on the at the bottom of the page, which are more of these kind of, they look a little more, I don't know, they kind of have like portholes on the sides, flames coming up. They're just slightly different. They look That's more of what we're getting compared to the old the stuff that we were getting before, at least, you know, 20 years ago or so. 
So it, it's it's interesting. Where are they collecting them now? I'm not too sure. But I'm, I'm, my guess would be Aaron is where they're getting them from. Um, what's cool about Keyons is they have super shiny tails, super shiny, glossy. Um, their islands are quite wet and rainy and scrub-like. Um, and as a result, their pattern has become something different. Um, if you look at the pattern, the pattern has pretty much blown out in a way. It's kind of freckled out, granity type of look. Um, when they are born, they are born looking like any other Indonesian animal. And as they grow, their pattern starts to change and alter. And by the time they're adults, you know, you could, some of them, you could barely see what pattern they used to have, and they have become these kind of freckled animals. Um, they, they all tend to have a white nose, which is pretty funny, and white lips, but everything else is just covered in freckles. Um, and they're really, really cool. These guys are kind of difficult to take care of, um, kind of like the Hamaheros. These are another ones that are not as easy um, because of their hydration issues as well. They need it to be quite humid. They're glossy like that because they come from a very wet environment. Um, and as a result, you've got to at least give them access to a humid area or humidity in order for them to thrive for you and not have respiratory eye issues and mysterious illness type of thing going on with them. Um, and they're just really neat. I, I find them, again, like all blue tongues, to be quite prone to overeating. And I think that about 90% of pictures you'll see of these guys, they're way too fat. Um, and that goes to Indonesians in general. Indonesian blue tongues do not store fat the same way um, Australian blue tongues do. They don't need to. They live in an, they live in a tropical paradise. They don't need to store fat the way a blue tongue that lives in the middle of the desert needs to. They don't. Um, they have access to food generally all the time. They're a little more active. If you look at their leg length, their leg length is longer than most of the Australian blue tongues. Um, they tend to be a little more active, a little more uh, have higher prey drive, uh-huh. and it just makes a lot of sense that they would be that way um, in a place in a tropical island. It would have to be a little more. Um, less, you know, their ecology is, is different than some something that lives in Australia, um, and that's why their husbandry has to be different, or they will not work out the same way. Um, and so these guys tend to not be; they tend to be maybe a little pickier when it comes to food. Um, some of the Australian stuff will literally eat anything, you know, including vegetables and things. These guys, they're not going to touch a vegetable; they're just not. Unless you coat it in pig fat or something, they're not going to eat it. Um, because in where they live, they don't need to. They don't need to eat vegetables when there's bugs aplenty or food aplenty. They don't need to eat something that's so low in nutrition. They don't need to do that. So why would they? Only Australian animals would have to, in the worst kind of scenario, have to eat vegetation only because they have to. And that's that's how, when we get into dietary issues, that's kind of the difference there. Um but Keon's is super cool. Some of my favorites. Um, and they were super rare up until about like three years ago. And well, they all just came in. Yeah, yeah, I think the word got out that everybody really wanted them. And boom, less than a year later, you know, they're now, the prices are staying kind of higher than all the other stuff. But now they're almost like, if you want one, you can get one. They're not that hard anymore. Um, so they're, they are really cool, though. Really cool animals. And the last, I oh. guess we'll, we'll just touch on real quick. Just, just we're not going to really talk about it much. Is the pygmy blue tongue? Um, 
which their territory is around Adelaide, if I believe I said that right. Um, yep. And they're, like, super small. Um, they're, like, six, seven inches, like, tiny little things. They live in the ground. They're only related to blue tongues through genetic you know, testing and stuff. They, cause they're, they are blue tongues. They're just super small. They kind of live in this kind of niche where they live on the ground and stuff. So um, I hear that in Australia. They're now um, they, they're super endangered because they have such a small uh, territory. And Australians have just recently, now you can keep them and breed them in captivity now. There's some in, in captivity now. So we'll see them. I have a feeling they're going to be around very quickly. In a few years, we'll see them around. So, but that's pretty cool that they're that they're now in the hobby because for a long time they were not. So, it's pretty cool. So that's that's the crux of of the of the you know the group. Um, it's quite a lot. You know, any questions, please give them to me. But that's kind of the idea. Right. So I guess for most people, just understand that there's an Indonesian half, not even half, maybe an Indonesian fourth, and mm-hmm. then there's, you know, 35% live in Australia, so that's their kind of separation there. Um, if you're looking at their, their prehistoric past, for what it seems is that they migrated down into Australia, just like every other reptile did, and then once being isolated in Australia, evolved into all the different forms that we see now. Um, that's the kind of crux of it. So if you want to see, you know, probably things like um, the gigas or Indonesian animals are probably more uh, basal in terms of the species. Um, they're probably more like the ancestry, uh, the ancestral blue tongues. Um, it just makes sense seeing that the way they travel down into Australia and then colonize most, if not all, of Australia at this point. So, yeah, just like any other animal that, you know, blue tongues, a lot of people think blue tongues, ah, Australian, right? They are, yeah, they're Australian, but like most Australian animals came from somewhere else. So, um, yeah. At one point or another. Mm-hmm. Huh, okay, cool. Yeah, um, that's a lot. <laughs> the one question that, that I would ask is all of them. Yeah. <laughs> the one question that I would ask is that um yeah. the uh is there is there intergrade zones like what you see with say a coastal carpet and a diamond python? Is there is there places where they overlap to where um you get these sort of in betweeners or does that Um absolutely. Um watched have been known to interbreed with Easterns, which have been known to interbreed with Shinglebacks, which have, been, like, they, yeah, they so all So it's similar integrate. to what you say. Okay. Absolutely. They all integrate. Now, whether or not these integrated animals are reproductively viable is another question. You know, um, I would think that Shingles and Easterns would be far enough removed that they can't produce, but I don't, I don't know. Um could there be 25% shingle eastern crosses out there? I'm sure. Like, <laughs> like why not? Like, I'm sure right. that's the case. I mean, they're actually blue tongue. Um, so there's Bellatorius, which is another genus of skink on the island, and there is mixes between them and blue tongues, like straight hybrids of different genus. So it's totally possible. So I don't see, you know, which are wow. really weird looking. Yeah, like really weird. I believe they have interbred with Egernia genus as well. I, 
But yeah, there is integrated. Oh there. man, that's like Carpanto territory. Woo. Oh my god. <laughs> Wandering out that far. No, that's that's worse than Carpanto. That's oh. like um that's like a like like a Green tree and a blood know. python. <laughs> oh like my a, like god, a super god. ball or something. Uh, uh, oh, that'd be like a bowling. Yeah, that'd be like a bowling's like uh, Stimson Python call. Oh wow! The hell? How would you? <laughs> Never mind. I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> okay, maybe not that bad, but it's pretty bad. That's that's horrible. And it's uh, yeah, and they produce viable young. Now I don't know if they're reproductively viable. The young are, but that's pretty amazing. So yeah, there is integrated zones. They don't integrate as much as you as let's say carpets do. Right. Mm. Um, but they will interbreed. There's, you know, so that does happen. Okay. Which Very is why cool. if you look at the northern, at the northern eastern, like the eastern zone of northern, um, you know, like in the northern part of their range, they look very closely related to northern. Well, because, well, at one point there was, there was an integrated zone there that now has been cut off by, for whatever reason, but there was an integrated zone there. Um, right. Just like there was an integrated zone in Indonesia and Australia, and that's why we have, you know, the roots. Um, right. So, yeah, hmm. absolutely. They do integrate. Absolutely. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right, Alan. It's all you. Cool. Um, <laughs> let's. Well, now that we know what the hell these things are, let's uh, get into some captive care. Uh, can you talk about how you uh, set up these guys in – uh, your collection and how you would recommend somebody else set up something in their collection. Alrighty, big million dollar question. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we're going to make a distinction between a breeder's setup uh-huh. and a keeper's setup. Okay. Um, which, which I guess you know, if you're keeping one blue tongue in your house as a pet, because these are the ultimate pet reptile. They're great. They're, you know, they're great. So you're not going to want, you don't need a rack system to keep your blue gun if, if your only pet you have, you know. So mm-hmm. I'm going to explain how I keep as a breeder, but then also how that can pertain to somebody who keeps as just a keeper. And right. the differences and the sim- similarities in that, and, you know. And also okay. most of what I'm going to say is Indonesian-based, but, I have kept northern. That's what I started with, so I will touch on that as well. But is, um, is there a big difference between keeping the Australian and the Indo? Um, big difference, uh, not so much. But there are, I guess, would be like okay. So the difference between keeping Australian and Indo would be the difference between keeping a carpet and a chondro. If that makes any sense. <laughs> okay. Similar, yes. Very similar, but different in a way. But they thrive um, better in different things. I gotcha. Right, exactly. Yeah, you could keep an Indo like a like a like an Australian, but it's not going to be the best, and it's going to suffer for it. And so, um, so I guess you know, I think we could talk about caging first. I guess that's probably the biggest thing. Um, yep. I personally keep in racks. I know that that's. It used to be very controversial about know, three years ago. Seems like seems like we're rapidly mm-hmm. changing our ideas about how to keep these animals. I think because people are becoming more vocal about how they probably always have kept, but now because of the popularity of blue tongues, are finding a voice. I guess if that makes any sense. So mm-hmm. 
I would say that a lot of breeders do keep in racks. Um, obviously, what racks afford you is the same kind of benefits that racks afford you with, you know, snakes. You're looking at easy to clean, you know, space saving, all that, security, everything that it will apply to a snake also applies to the skink. Skinks are not, um, they like security. They live on the ground. They like to hide other things. It would make sense that a rack is, would be something that they can live in. So at least we'll get that out of the way. You know, mm-hmm. They're not tree-climbing animals, so there's no need necessary to have a two-foot-tall cage. It doesn't make sense. Or even a foot-tall cage, to be honest. They stay on the ground, generally. Okay. Now, I keep them in CB centimeters. Um, so what you would keep a carpet in, um, or a smaller carpet anyway, you know. CB centimeters is what I keep. Um, I've been keeping them in CB centimeters for about two years now, and they have been fine. Perfect. Love it. What, what it allows me to do is it allows me to keep a gradient that I feel is important for the animals I'm working with, which is in English. I would say the first thing you have to do before you get a blue tongue, if you're a pet or even a breeder, is look at the situation you have in your reptile room now or even the situation that you have in your house if you're going to keep it just, you know, in your house. And pick a blue tongue that's going to be best suited for the situation you're putting in. Because there's quite a variety, and you can pick the perfect skink for your situation. Um, If you live in Florida and you constantly have high humidity, and you have a reptile room that constantly stays in the 80s and everything else, well, Indonesians are going to be more your gig, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a dedicated reptile room that you keep in the 80s, well, Indonesians are probably going to be more your gig. Um, if you have a room that drops down to room temperature even lower, or you keep stuff in the garage, well, maybe you're going to have one something that's a little more cold tolerant is going to be a little more tolerant of changing temperatures and changing humidity. So you're going to want maybe a northern, or you're going to want um, maybe even a blotched, or you know, if you can find one, or maybe an eastern, stuff like that. So there's going to be a little more tolerant. And there's different. So that would be my first thing. As a result, I think that if you're just a pet keeper, if you're someone who keeps in your house, yeah, you can go and get yourself a hamahara. Um, but if you don't have a preference, I do not suggest it. I do not suggest anybody to get a classic Indonesian, Halmahera, or a Key Island if you plan on keeping this thing in a room temperature room, not in a rack, and there's reasons for that. They like high humidity. Your screen top is not going to provide the high humidity this animal needs. The temperature is you're going to have to subject this animal in order for it to keep the core body temperature optimal where it wants to be are going to be much higher because your room temperature is much lower. Does that make sense? So yeah. Blue tones, I find, like to be in the low 80s to mid 80s as a core body temperature. Kind of similar to, to, to pythons, maybe a little warmer, but that's kind of their, that's what they're aiming for. Um, when a blue tongue goes and sits on a, on a basking spot, it's getting its core body temperature to low 80s. And then it's moving off that basking spot. Then it's going back on. Then it's moving off, and it's thermal regulating to keep its core body temperature at the 80 to 85 or around there, low 80. Mm-hmm. So if your room is 75 degrees, guess what? That animal is going to have to bask more often and for a longer period of time. 
in order to keep its body temperature at that low 80 temperature. Does that make sense, right? We all know that. Yeah. So in Indonesian animals, animals that suffer from dehydration and need high humidity requirements, putting them basking all day is not going to help them because their core body temperature is going to be in the 80s, but their surface temperature is going to be much higher than that, which is going to dry out their skin, which is going to dry out their cage, which is going to cause them respiratory issues and other issues. So to me, it's harder to use a tank with overhead heat like a heat lamp and try to raise Indonesian in a tank. It's hard. It's not easy. It's possible, but it's just not easy. So for a beginner, okay. I do not suggest that. Um, Temperature-wise, I shoot for my room temperature in my room is anywhere from 78 to about 84 during the summer. It's about 84. So it gets a little warmer during the summer. So it's between mm-hmm. those. My hot spot is set at 90 degrees. Now, a lot of people would say that's too low. A lot of people like to keep their basking temperatures between about 95 when it comes to blue tongues. I can get away with it because I keep my room warm. So they're not experiencing temperatures below 75 degrees on the regular, so they don't need to thermoregulate that drastically, right? So it affords me to be able to move lower temperatures because I am shooting for that optimal temperature, which happens to be the same kind of temperature range that is in Indonesia. They don't get very cold and they don't get way too hot. It kind of stays right in that mid-zone in the 80s. Uh, and, I, and so that's what I try to shoot for. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the Australian species, like the northern, you could swing that. You could swing that wildly, really. You can have a basket spot set to 100 degrees if you really wanted to. I wouldn't suggest that high. I would suggest if you're going to keep it in a room temperature room, shoot for 95 degrees. I know it's you know 90 to 95. I know it's lower than a lot of people like to use. Um, but I think we overheat our animals mm-hmm. on top of overfeeding. It's something that blue people are very guilty of. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would lower that basket temperature down to about 90, 90 to 95. And, you know, if you're in a room temperature room, you're looking at a basking light. My preferred thing is heat panels. When you give you a heat panel, to me, that's a not, it doesn't dry out the air as much as, let's say, a basket light bulb does. Right? So in that situation, you want about 90 to 95 in a hot spot and then down into the room temperature on the other side of the cage, right? In my situation, I'm shooting for an 80 to, to uh, 82 room temperature and about a 90-degree hot spot, so just shortening that that temperature gradient. Um, and they okay. do fine. They do totally fine. I Actually, with the Indonesian stuff, um, when I first got them, mm-hmm. I know people, I, I, I really want to stop it because it works, but I prefer to give them the gradient. I was keeping them. I tried it out for about nine months. I kept them straight ambient temperature in my room. Because at the time, yeah. it was summer when I first got them, and my room was 84 anyways. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to keep them ambient and see how they do. They did great. They did fine. And these were indoors, by the way, but they did great at that temperature. Not suggesting that, but this is the temperature they were shooting for. They shooting for those low 80s. Um, that's their optimal hmm. temperature. Um, very similar okay. to pythons. Um, so that's where you're looking at. Uh, substrate-wise, there's some, you know, people like to use different things. My go-to substrate is cypress mulch, 
One, because these animals are semi-fossorial. They like to dig. They like to be understuffed. Um, the cypress mulch allows them to dig. I like to put a few inches of it in there so they can dig real deep if they want to or get down underneath it. Um, now, in, in for the Australian stuff, it works because it does dry out quite quickly, in like a tank setup or in a very ventilated area. It will dry out and work fine for Australian stuff. But if you mist it regularly, it will also retain humidity quite well as well mm-hmm. and, and give you good. So it's it, to me, it's the best. I don't like aspirin. I know a lot of people use aspirin. I specifically do not use aspirin because I find it to be really dusty, and you'll have your skin sneezing all the time. And to me, it's just it never worked out for me. I had a lot of sneezy animals when I used it. Um, okay. And then Carefresh is just too dry. Carefresh is that uh, you know that is right that crumpled up it's paper a stuff. It's egg crate crap, right? Yeah, that stuff. Yeah, okay absorbs every moisture out of, it'll absorb moisture out of your room, dude. This stuff is like crazy absorbent. Which is good for cleanup, but it'll suck moisture and humidity right out of the air. Um yeah. so I don't like using that stuff, you know. Um so yeah, so Cypress, um hides, I put hides. Okay. And, you know, anything for it to hide under and a nice large water bowl. These animals okay. drink a lot. They drink a lot. From the Australian stuff to the Indonesian stuff, they love their water, and they will drink it. Um, so I like to provide a nice large water bowl so they constantly, you know, obviously. Um, and that's pretty much it. That's the setup, man. Very simple. Um, give them a nice warm spot for them to bask, and, and let them, you know, give them 12 hours a day. They'll do 24 hours. And you only need it for half of the day, daytime, and that's it. Cut it out at night and let them cool down at night. Um in terms of lighting, this is, I guess, where the UVB versus not UVB thing comes yeah. about. Um, yeah. I'm on the no UVB uh, side of this debate. Um, I keep in racks, so obviously, you know, you can't put UVB in your racks. And there's a lot of, there's some controversy, not as much as there used to be, but there's some controversy around it. Um, if you're keeping it in a tank, if you want to put a UVB bulb over your tank, fine. It's not going to hurt. Certainly not going to hurt. Uh, mm-hmm. Is it necessary? Mm-hmm. Depends on what you feed. Um, and I feed what I consider a balanced diet that has plenty of vitamin D3 in it. So UVB allows reptiles to absorb that radiation and mm-hmm. synthesize vitamin D3 from their skin and then use that to then be able to convert calcium into bone and things like that, right? That's the whole idea behind UVB. So if you don't have D3 in your your system, by either providing it through UVB or providing it through dietary supplements, what ends up happening is they cannot process the calcium in their bodies, hence not being able to rebuild their bone, causing weak joints, weak bones, causing kinks, causing problems. We don't want that. That's called metabolic bone disease. We don't want that. In order to get away from that, you need to have to supplement their diet or give give them UVB and supplement their diet. That's where a lot of people right. go wrong. UVB is, a UVB bulb is so unlike the sun, which is one thing I get in the argument all the time. It's trying to replicate something that's not, you cannot replicate. You cannot replicate right. the sun. You can do as a good of a chance, yeah. as good of a, you can try the best you can, and it will allow your animal to absorb, to be able to, synthesize some vitamin D. It will. Will it give it enough? No, it will not. Guarantee you it will not. You will still have to supplement 
on top of giving the UVB. So to me personally, I'd rather cut out this thing that to me is, is in my mind, unnecessary. If I have right. a supplement, even though I am giving them UVB, you know, what's the point? You know, why I, I can cut out, right. keep it simple, right? That's that's my whole idea. Yeah. Does it help? Yes, it does. Is it necessary? No, it's not. So that's the UVB debate. Uh, I mean, well, it goes forward and back. I mean, they people have done like a little test at home. Breeders have done tests where they've uh-huh. raised a group of babies on nothing but UVB, raised a group of babies on nothing but D3 supplements, and then raised a group of babies on both UVB and D3. Guess what? What animals did the worst? Had uh-huh. anabolic bone problems. The ones with Bro. just the UVB. Just the UV. Okay. They you have the biggest problems. Right. They either need they either need only the D three or they need both UVB and D three. To me, I just get rid of the UVB and keep it easy. Yeah. Um, Forget about it. Yeah. Now, in saying that, I do keep in racks, and these are diurnal animals. What right. that means is, make sure you're picking racks that are going to let a lot of light in. Okay. Um, things like vision tufts, vision racks, things like, um, you know, um, the economy racks from animal classes, which have open sides. Something so that these animals are not sitting in the dark. That's not good for them either. Um, okay. Because these are diurnal animals. You want them to have a light cycle. Even if you just turn on lights in your room and have your room lights on a timer, Something so that they can experience a light cycle. You don't want them sitting in the dark. I know a lot of people like to keep their snakes in the dark, too. I don't even prefer that. But mm-hmm. these guys especially, they will not do well kept in the dark. It's just not good for them. Um, so you want them to have that cycle. But in terms of the UVB radiation, I just then, I, I haven't had a need for it. I haven't seen a difference in keeping them without. Um right. And so, you know, that's kind of where I'm at in that debate. Uh, but, hey, use it. If you feel like you need it, use it. But please, please continue to supplement them with, with you know, dietary D3 because they will need it. That will not be enough. No okay. matter how big of a bulb you get, it will not be enough. It's not simulating the sun as well as it should. So that's why I do this D3. And it's funny because... Even things that you would think need absolutely need UVB, no no matter what, people are finding don't. Uh, for instance, right. day geckos. Day geckos for the longest time, people say, if you have UVB, your day gecko is going to drop dead, it's not going to do well, yada, yada. What I'm finding is a lot of people have gotten away from UVB and are using more and more D3 supplementing rather than UVB because it just doesn't do enough. Um, even people who keep in urinastics, I mean, a sun-loving, mm-hmm. you know, African desert animal. People are not even using UVB for those animals. It's quite amazing, actually. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just staying away from it, and that's kind of my thing. But, hey, it won't hurt, and it may help. So that's, that's okay. that whole debate. So that's lighting. Well, you, that's caging. I guess I guess now is what? I don't know. Diet. Diet. You already hit on it a little bit, but, like, it says, like, you do a natural diet versus a commercial diet. There's a debate even with that. So, yeah, what, what all so, that? you, you um, kind of mentioned supplementing, so. Yeah, so the natural diet versus the natural diet. And I do that as I'm doing air quotes, natural diet mm-hmm. versus the commercial diet, which pretty much means insects, meat, vegetables, uh, fruit versus, like, dog food. 
plus other stuff. I'm in the dog food camp. Okay. Um, dog food. Dog food has been engineered to be a complete a complete diet for dogs, which happen to be uh-huh. happen to be opportunistic predators. It kind of just fits. Um, a lot of dog food has a lot of meat in it, has some vegetable matter, some uh, fruit matter in it. So when you look at the the makeup of dog food, and you look at the what the makeup of what um, the blue tones are eating in the wild, they're very similar to the point where it's mm. like almost one for one, where you're like, oh man! So the exact percentage of of vegetables that are in this dog food is the exact percentage of vegetables that we find in the gut floor of of wild blue tones. This is kind of it's kind of amazing how that's kind of worked out. You know, people say it's lazy or whatever, and I guess we're going to get into that. But dog food, to me, has has been engineered to be a complete diet for dogs, yes, but happens to work very well for blue tongue. Now, in saying that, I use dog food, then supplement that dog food with reptile-based dietary supplements. So I personally use um, Calcium Plus High D, it is made by Rapashi. So it's it's there it's it's calcium plus multivitamins and on top of that it has an extra dose of vitamin D three in it. And I use that on every meal. It's meant to be used for every meal. It's engineered that way. So it's just easy for me. I just dust, I every meal I give them and that's it. There's no guesswork, there's no schedule, there's no nothing. That's it. Dust it, give it, done. And I've been feeding them that way. I've been raising blue things that way for about four years now on that stuff, and it's been working great. I mean, it works fine. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a problem with it, and it's super easy. Um, because the other way you can do it is supplementing dog food is you could do calcium D3 someday, multivitamin supplement every one every you know every other week, and it's just too much. I rather have something that's engineered to be used daily, so that way it's easy for me. I have to I take out the guesswork. There's no there's no scheduling involved. Super simple. I open a can of dog food, put it in a plate, dust it, give it. Do I add stuff mm-hmm. to it? Yes, I do. I do add fruit and or vegetables depending on the time of year. I do seasonal feeding, meaning during yep. the summer when it's blueberry season, my guys are eating the crap out of blueberries because just like in the wild, they're seasoned for fruits, they're seasoned for things, and I kind of replicate that by giving them different things throughout the year. But that base is dog food. As long as your base is dog food and then you supplement different things on top of it like hard-boiled eggs or a mouse or a baby carpet python or whatever, <laughs> as long as whatever's baby, available. Right, or you know, <laughs> shredded carrots or, you know, that piece of banana you didn't finish or some roaches or some, you know, whatever, as long as that base is dog food, you're generally going to be in good shape because you have that baseline down. Then everything else on top of that is gravy, and if you can vary the diet on top of that, then you're doing good, in my opinion. Like that's that's what you're aiming for. Now I know in like all, I guess in Australia it's quite popular to feed um, dry dog food or dry. They use cat food more in Australia than they do here, um, but dry dog food and cat food, and they just put a bowl of dry dog food in there, and that's it. There you go. They supplement that dog food, of course. But that's pretty much it. They put a bowl of dry dog food in there, water, and they let the animal go. 
And what's amazing about dry dog food, which a lot of people don't realize is, it's kind of kind of almost too good in that it's not very palatable, meaning that blue tongues don't like to gorge on this stuff because it doesn't really taste that good. It's not very appetizing, so they only eat when they're hungry. So that's a good thing, especially on, a, on an animal that is prone to obesity. Having something on a, on a diet that they don't gorge on is probably a good thing, and I think that's why we've seen a lot of success with people using dry diets is it's, they don't sit there and down the whole bowl. You can literally put a whole bowl in there, and they'll eat it little by little throughout the week, keeping a healthy weight. It's quite amazing how it's working out. It's working out very well. I don't feed dry. Okay. Exclusively. Because I keep Indonesian animals, animals that are very prone to dehydration in themselves. So, dog food, dry dog food or dry food in any way requires a lot of hydration through the gut system in order for them to digest it, right? It just makes sense. That's why dry, that's yeah. when you feed your dog dry dog food, he drinks a lot of water, right? Right. Because he needs to in order to digest all that dry food. Same thing with the blue tongues. If you feed them dry food, they're going to need to drink a lot of water. When you have an animal that's prone to dehydration and you feed them dry dog food, you can see how you can cause a problem in that. You can just exacerbate right. that issue. Um, Marook's not so much. I've, I, you know, between meals, I'll you know if I have if I'm raising young marooks and I want to feed them more often, I'll throw some, you know you know a little bit of dry dog food in there. They'll eat it up if they're hungry and they're fine. But on stuff like key islands and things and, or halmaheras or Indonesians, I would try to stay away from the dry stuff, only because they're high dehydration prone. Um, but I mean that's it. That's how simple it is. I mean that you can't get much simpler than that. Now in terms of what dog food you feed. A lot of people are like, oh, yeah. dog food, you could go crazy and get the organic, you know, no, no, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I do that. You know, I kind of go all out and buy the $2 can of dog food, half can of dog food, whatever, compared to the 50 cent stuff. I do that. But they've been proven to be raised fine on nothing but pedigree dog food, which is not that great. You know, it's not the highest quality <laughs> dog food out no, there. No, no, no. Yeah. You know, half of the thing is like sawdust and shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, seriously. <laughs> and they've so been know, raised, of course. you know, they've been yeah. raised like that. Fine. You know, that was the go-to dog food for, for you know, for raising blue zones for a long time was pedigree beef dog food. Like, eh, pretty crappy stuff. Dude. I wouldn't even feed that to my dog, let alone, you know? So, <laughs> but you can use that. They've been proven to be fine on that. You know, there's there is proof of 30-year-old animals, 30 years old, eating nothing but dog food their whole life and still producing Mm. litters every year. I mean, this is, you can't beat that. Like, people want to say, well, you have no proof it works. Well, yeah, we kind of do. Hey, if I could keep any animal for 30 years and it's thriving and still producing young on nothing but dog food, why wouldn't I use the dog food? Why? Because in your mind, it's not natural. Well, neither is keeping in a box natural. Neither is a heat lamp natural. <laughs> that whole natural idea is kind of bogus in a way. Yeah, you want to keep it as natural as possible, but this comes to a certain point. Dubia roaches don't live in Australia. You know what I mean? Like, come on, people. <laughs> uh, you know? Correct. Yeah, you, you um, carrots, yeah. Carrots don't naturally grow in Australia. Neither does lettuce, okay? Neither does uh, collard greens, all right? So you can say it's not natural to feed your, your animal 
dog food, but it's not natural to feed them anything we're feeding them in, in, in captivity, you know. Unless you're in Australia and keeping this thing in your backyard and you're feeding it whatever snail or whatever crawls in its cage, it's not happening. So <laughs> yeah. not, don't go for natural, but go for optimal. There's a difference between that, you know. And we all like keep our animals thing. in the optimal way. I don't, you know, I don't keep any of my animals in a natural way because it's impossible, but I keep them in the most optimal way possible. That's what I do. Now, my issue with the feeding the natural thing is now you're trying to use multiple bits of food items to then uh, simulate a complete diet. So you're trying to get the right proportions of insects, the right proportions of uh, lettuce or, or greens or collard greens or mustard greens or whatever you want to use, the right proportions of fruit, the right proportions of meat, and you're trying to do it in your own mind and doing all this guesswork to try to get the perfect diet when we already have one that works perfectly good. Makes no sense. That's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Not, and what ultimately happens is you'll see people freak out all the time. My skink's not eating their greens. Well, skinks don't eat greens in the wild anyway, so I don't even know why you're trying to feed them that. They're not eating that. They eat that when they don't have anything else to eat. So you're not giving them something they want. And so you know what You know what the uh, the, the suggestion is? Oh, well, just cover it in dog food. You're like, <laughs> Wait, for uh, real? You're just telling me to lie. Well, what you do is you take the collard greens and you blend it with everything else. Like, look, then... You're making it eat something it doesn't even want to eat. Right. For what reason? Because you think in your mind that it's healthier? You know, because you feel better about your pet? That's fine, but it just doesn't work out. And ultimately, these animals that are fed this natural diet where people are trying to do guesswork to complete a diet, what ends up happening is these animals suffer from dietary issues all the time. Right. You know? Hmm. Or even like what we noticed the community has noticed that when Indonesian animals are fed a lot of vegetable matter when they're babies or when they're young or even throughout their lives, what ends up happening is your scalation becomes quite pronounced. If you look at at an Indonesian from the wild, they have very slick skin or scales. Their scales lie flat, 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 flat. Mm -hmm. When you see a lot of Indonesians in captivity, you'll see a lot of bumps. Like their scales are very pronounced. That's not normal. It's not what they're supposed to look like. And what we found out is feed them, feeding them a lot of vegetable matter, a lot of fibers, a lot of minerals, all these things that come in vegetable matter can cause them to have a thicker scalation than they would ultimately in the wild. Makes sense. So uh-huh. you're, you're, you're changing the animal's physiology because you're stubborn and you don't want to get something that is proven to work. And on top of that, I also think that dehydration has a, has tends to crinkle scales and tends to cause scales to be more pronounced and things like that as well. That's something we also have found. So, you know, it's very rare that you see a, a, a skink uh, in captivity that's been raised in captivity have nice, smooth skin, uh, uh, Indonesian, very rare. Um, usually the ones that are are eating, feeding mostly on a lot of meat-based diets and a lot of protein-based diets because that's most of what they're eating in the wild, mm-hmm. you know. So if you want to tell me, you know what, I'm going to feed my, my baby skinks practically nothing but insects for the first year, I would even almost accept that. I would almost be like, that seems a little more like they would do in the wild than feeding them collard greens. <laughs> yep. You know? 
that makes a little more sense. I'll, I'm okay with that. I even suggest all my young guys, I, all my babies that I'm raising up, I do try to feed them as much insect matter as possible because it's just so packed with protein that they grow so rapidly that, you know, that that's good for them, you know. But ultimately, you know, it's it's so funny because this the dietary issues that are, are such a, a prominent thing that not to throw my vet under the bus, but I have this conversation with my vet all the time. She's always telling me, you know, ah, oh, you got to feed it greens, guys. You got to do this. You got to do that. And I'm always like, okay, all right. <laughs> Little does she know that I feed musking dog food. If I were to tell her that, she would flip. But she, she like, uses my skinks. Yeah. <laughs> she uses my skinks as, as you know, controls for her, you know, studies. So she's using my skinks as the pinnacle of health when it comes to her skink studies that she's doing at the University of Penn. So it's like, mm. but I'm feeding up mm. with the dogs and keeping her rats. The thing she tells me not to do. Not to do. Yeah. Of, so it's <laughs> kind of funny, you know, some things that have been said. Skewed. Right. Some <laughs> things that have been said 10 years ago just don't hold water. Like they right. just don't hold up when you look at things that have been done 20, you know, years from, you know, ago. Like it's just not the same, you know. Right. And, and and part of that is for the pet. It's not part of that is due to the pet keeper, and I understand that. I understand you're keeping this as your pet. This is your, your friend, whatever. That's cool. I understand that. You want to give this animal the best you can, but you can be giving your animal a disservice by feeding it things that it just doesn't want to eat, and it doesn't want to eat it because it doesn't need it. It doesn't need it because you're looking at information that is 20 years old rather than looking at what people are doing now. So that would be my suggestion. Look at the ecology of the animal. Look at where they come from. Some common sense can be sometimes can 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 hold out. Like, why would this thing need to eat leaves if there's insects all the way around it? Like, what would like? It doesn't make sense. It, you know. <laughs> anyway, so that's that's the argument. You know, that's that's kind of the natural versus not. I'd say dog food. You want to throw everything else on top of that? Be my guess. You know, but. Stick with something that's complete. And I know a lot of people are like, well, what if they come out with a blue tongue-specific diet? I was like, it would look just like dog food and be 10 times more expensive. <laughs> it would be dog food repackaged, yeah. They would yeah. take dog food and put a blue tongue on it and charge you 10 times more, just like if you buy a heat lamp at, at Petco versus buying it at Home Depot. Right. Yeah, it's the same damn bulb. It's, it's like $3. Three dollars yeah. at uh, yeah. Home Depot. What what would Super what would a commercial blue tongue diet look like? Oh, it looks like dog food. Like, this is dog true. Food. It would look like it would look like this. So, it there like was dog food. there was a question though when it came to uh, the vitamins. Um, when you're do- mm-hmm. when you're doing it the way you're doing it, do you think that they could get too much vitamins? Um. Yes, and you got to be careful. Um, I've yeah, and I think that's another issue as well. Too much of a good mm-hmm. thing is always a bad thing, right? Right, um, right. And you can over-supplement, absolutely. Um, I've been using Rapashi, uh, high D, which is, has higher doses of, of D3. But it, it's if you look at the way that the supplement I used was formulated, it was formulated for this exact reason. It was formulated for diurnal animals, that are not offered UVB. It says that on the label. This is what it's for. So I use something that I trust and a company I trust 
in supplementing my animals. And I dust very lightly. I don't douse the thing. I don't do anything like that. I dust lightly, and that's it. There is natural, there's D3 added to every can of dog food or any dry dog food. Dogs need D3 just like all animals need it. So it's in dog food. But I like to supplement a little more because it's not quite the same, you know. Um, so this is an eye insurance policy. I put a little bit of that on, and then I know that what's formulated for reptiles is on there, and I feel safe about offering it. Most people, Some people don't even supplement their dog food, just straight dog food, and are fine. I like to be a little safer than sorry, and that's why I do it. But if you're dousing your food items with powder every day, you know, you're going to be in trouble. Because you're just giving it way too much. It's like if I, if every day I I, I went to GNC and down like three bottles of multivitamin, it's not gonna be, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna be in trouble, man. It's this not gonna work out. Excellent. <laughs> you know, it's just not gonna work, and you're gonna get sick. Again, too much of yep. good and can't be a bad thing. So you gotta be careful. I only use my vitamins every day, but here's the thing. This is another thing you have to realize. I don't feed every day, so when People are like, you're using your vitamins every day? I said, no. I, I use my vitamins once a week because that's how often I feed. Right. Which brings yeah. the other question. The the amount of food you feed your skin is another controversial I guess it's controversial. I find <laughs> people feed their animals way too much. I think we find that constantly in animals in general. People got fat dogs. People got fat cats. People have fat snakes and people have fat skinks because people feed them every day and they just don't need it. Dog food is high in calories, right? So if dog right. food is a complete diet and it works so well, great. But it's also extremely high in calories. It's meant for a mammal. That means a mammal and a dog food needs to be eaten twice a day for that mammal to survive, right? So right. you're trying to compare what a dog eats to compare to what a lizard, a lazy lizard eats. And you cannot be offering food every day, in my opinion. It's just you're dooming yourself. Yeah, will your skink eat every day? Yeah, it may nibble every day. But it's not healthy in the long run. I cannot tell you. I Well, I would say about 90% of skinks I see online, about 90, and I'm being honest, 90 are overweight, if not obese, like badly, badly overweight, if not obese. And so... You see this constantly, and then you see people feed their skinks every day or every other day, and you're like, that's way too much food. It's just way too much food. These are slow metabolism, slow-moving animals that in the wild are eating a few bugs a day when they can catch them, when they can find them, and that's pretty much what they're doing, and they're doing that every day. So if you're going to feed them something that's so high in rich and fat and, and in calories like dog food, you can't feed them that every day. You're going to result in a fat animal. So I, on my adults, feed my adults only once a week. And they shock people, you know, but I only feed them once a week. Now, because I feed wet dog food, I do about a 50, uh, I do about, actually, I don't I don't even do pure wet anymore because I find that stools get a little wet if you do pure wet. But I do about, I do about, let's say, 60% dry and about 40% wet. It's kind of the, the mix I do. And that's what I mm-hmm. feed. Um, and I feed that once a week. And the wet dog food will, the skates will gorge on it. So they will eat until they're full. And that's all they get for the whole week. 
maybe part, part, part way through the week, depending on the time of year, I may throw in some blueberries, throw in some hard-boiled eggs, throw in a roach or two or whatever I have laying around, you know, just to see the meat just because mm-hmm. I like them. But generally, that base amount is all they get for the week. And then whatever is on top of that is on top of that, but that's it. When it comes to juveniles, I feed them about twice a week. Um, when I'm raising animals up, I feed them twice a week. I know some people like to feed babies every day. When a baby is recently born, yes, feeding them every day to every other day is important. They grow rapidly. So if you do not feed them their their needed amount, they will develop problems because they're not getting the amount of nutrition they need. So, yeah, as babies, you got to be feeding these guys every other day at the least. Now, as they grow older, six months, that sort of thing, I cut it down to every other day. Not every other day, I mean twice a week. And then as they grow to about a year old, to about 18 months old, then it's once a week. So my adults only feed about once a week. That's it. And they're fine. Actually, one of my girls is still fat, and she's been on this diet for three years. So, <laughs> you know, because where she get, came get from. Dinner, damn it. <laughs> yeah, where she came from, she was fed so much. She came to me, one of my key islands, the one that she didn't breed. She's an eight-year-old girl, and the one that she didn't breed, she is so fat. I can't even super fat when she came to me uh, to the point where her arms looked like balloons because they were like, you know, inflated arms. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. That fat. And I did whatever I could and I started slimming. And she slimmed down some, but she's always going to keep that fat. What ends up happening is when an animal is overweight for a long period of time, it's much harder for you to lose that weight. Humans are the same thing. If you're if you've been overweight for years, it's much harder for you to lose that weight than if you gain a few pounds over the over the summer. You know what I mean? It's just that's the way our body you that fat just sits there, and so that animal's metabolism has been slowed or has been reduced to the point where she ain't never going to get rid of that fat, and she's going to be chronically obese probably for the rest of her life. I may never breed her. That's what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. I'm not even expecting her to ever breed because that's how fat she is. I don't think it's going to work. Oh wow! <laughs> is is, it, is it hard to get a, an obese animal down to weight? Like, is it you know, is it easy to get them fat, and then is it really hard to get them to slim down? Exactly. So yeah. it's easy. I mean, it's like anything else too. Like you know, when you put when you pack on the pounds, it's hard for you to get rid of it once you pack it on. It's just the truth. You, you do the same thing to your animal. You you feed it, and it's freaking obese, and then you're trying to reduce the amount of food it takes, it just holds on to that. They're meant to hold on to fat. They're reptiles. They may not go with they may go without eating for months. So mm-hmm. their body their metabolism will slow, 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 slow all the way down. So they're barely using calories and they just hold on to that fat as long as possible. Because in their mind, they're not gonna get another meal. Or they may not get another meal. They're meant to hold right. weight. Right? And so you have especially Australian guys, Australian animals, they hold weight like I've never seen. I mean you know, you have big fat tails, big fat bodies. They mostly hold a lot of their weight in their tails, the Australian animals. So you'll get these carrot tails where they're really fat. Um, the Indonesian stuff cannot hold fat in their tails. The Maroons can a little bit, but not too much. But the Indonesian stuff generally, you'll have this giant sausage with a skinny tail sticking on the back. Is the funniest thing you see. <laughs> so, this is not at all look proportionate. Like, it just... You know, and they'll have mm. jowls, right? These like fat deposits underneath their chin that hang to the floor, dude. And you're like, "What are you doing? Like this, that's, that's not normal." 
Wow. That's not normal. And I can show you, you know, dozens. I don't want to throw, throw up anyway. Spot. But I can show you dozens of jowls hanging to the floor. And it's just not supposed mm-hmm. to be like that. Especially the Indonesian stuff. Indonesian animals in general are supposed to be thinner, lankier, you know, um, quicker animals. And people feed them like they're Australian stuff or, you know, and, and it just doesn't work out that way. Um, so only a few once a week. And like a tablespoon or two at most. And that's it. Mm. That's it. People are like, oh, I fed him like two cups yesterday. Like, what? Like, you know, like, <laughs> Holy you got crap. a great Dane? Like, what do you mean? Don't <laughs> give your dog a full. Like, you know, you have a, yeah, but it's a 20 inch lizard. It's not a great Dane lady. Like, what are you doing? You know? Right. I And you see it constantly. Like, I don't think, I think most people don't even know what a healthy skink even looks like. You know? Wow. So what they perceive is, oh, they're supposed to be sausages with little legs. No, not really. They're supposed <laughs> to be, you know, especially in those stuff, supposed to be long, lanky things that are, you know, mm-hmm. quick, going their leaf litter, not some fat blob that just sits there. Like, and this is the problem, and that kind of bleeds into breeding. You're going to have an animal that's not going to breed. It's just not going to happen. Because there's no way wow. to, for the baby to even fit. Like, you know? Right. There's <laughs> no place for the eggs to develop. Uh, yeah, it's just crazy, dude. Like, so feed them once a week. Keep them not as hot as you would. Um, and my setups are pretty easy for my for my uh, for my endos. You know, I keep the back of the cage, which is warmer where the heat tape is. I keep that drier, and I keep the front of the cage wetter. I just pour water in the front, leave the back dry, and that's it. Mm-hmm. When they want humidity, they come to the front, they nestle in, in the wet substrate, and they shed. Fine, and that's it. Easy. Get fed once a week. Easy. Water changes twice a week. And that's it. Easy, easy animal. Now, when people feed a lot, that means you're also pooping a lot. If you feed right. once a week, they're going to poop maybe two or three times at most. But that's it. If you're feeding them every day, they're pooping every day. You just tripled your amount your workload for no reason, and you're doing detriment to your animal. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the whole dietary thing. Um, dog food is a good thing. Dog food, dog food works, and I use what works. Yeah, it seems that uh, I mean that that would be, that would even go into snakes as far as people overfeeding. I think it's probably yeah. they just they probably think that this is their interaction with the animal, and uh, <laughs> you know that, that if, if it's healthy, one, yeah. You know, then somehow that it it relates to a healthy animal, I guess is, is the idea. Uh, yeah, which is the Absolutely. opposite. <laughs> you know, it's, yep. it's not the case. So, mm. Hmm. Mm. okay. All right. So, what is it? Eleven o'clock already? Good lord! It, it is yeah. eleven o'clock already, and you were concerned about <laughs> annoying. Your concern was filling the entire. Yeah. No, I wasn't was concerned. I was concerned we wouldn't have enough time, which is looking like the case. You're but. damn right we're not going to have enough time, but we're going to try. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my throat's parched. No, I'm good. I'm here. Good. All right. Good, good. All right. The next you want to touch on breeding, I guess? Yeah. Let's, yeah let's you want to go straight to breeding? Let's go to breeding. Well, well, wait. What was the next question? Just just maybe I can hand right out in about is, five seconds. Uh, would you have any tips for somebody getting uh, establishing a wild-caught animal? Oh, man. Um, 
Okay, so here's yeah, this is probably this is probably more important than breeding to be honest, because if this is gonna be an introduction, um you know what I mean? Like let's introduce right, yeah. people before we tell them how to breed the things, right? Probably a good idea. Probably, so, probably a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah, so let's go over this. I guess all right, I guess we could start with a story. Uh about a year ago I picked up a group of baby Key Islands. Um mm-hmm. straight from Indo. Uh, born in captivity, pretty much their their parent or their mothers were wild caught, and so they pretty much were born and then shipped over. Essentially, I got these four babies, and I experienced every major issue when it came to raising these animals that blue tongue skink keepers may have to deal with in their keeping. I mean, they, this project was doomed to fail. Um, it felt like it was doomed to fail. It felt like I got hosed over, and I did. But, you know, it was a disaster, and I was able to, with hard work, to be honest, turn the project around. And it was through good husbandry. And that's something I want to preference more than anything. There's this thing out there a lot of people like to call the mysterious illness. And this mysterious illness tends to happen to Indonesian animals, whether they be Maruks, whether they be um, regular classic Indos or Kians or Halmaharas, and what it is is one day you'll come in you'll look at your skink and it'll have his eyes glued shut. It'll be bubbling at the mouth. His face will be covered in sores. It will not look good. It will sound weird. It will have bad sheds. It will have its eyelids like all jacked up. You know, it may have crusts on its nose. What we would all, as python keepers, would be like, oh, respiratory, right? Clearly, you know, this mm. thing's having a bacterial issue, which is usually a result of stress, which is usually a result of, you know, any stressors, which could be bad husbandry or in, inappropriate. Maybe not bad. I don't want to use bad because nobody means to do this generally. It just tends to happen if things slip. Mm-hmm. And so we see this with a lot with imported animals because these animals are already coming in, dehydrated, underfed, malnourished, you know, um, kept at suboptimal temperatures, and they're coming in and they're having problems. And then on top of that, you're throwing husbandry that is outdated. You're overheating the animal. You're providing a dry environment, not a human environment like it came came from or needs. And then you run into problems. That's how it happens. So mysterious illness is not necessarily a mystery. What it is is a result. It is body's direct effect from its environment. So pretty much what happens is, I guess this is what, in my mind, this is my theory. I don't have anything to base this off of other than what my experiences have been. Okay, mm-hmm. when an animal is dehydrated and when an animal, well, yeah, is dehydrated and has low humidity and everything in its environment, right, its mucous mm-hmm. membranes dry out, right? Makes sense. If you if you can't produce any tears, your eyes will dry out and crust over. Am I right? It makes a lot of sense. You will right. dry right. out. Your lips will dry out. Your nostrils will dry out. You'll get crust on your nose. You'll get crusty lips. You'll get crusty eyes. You will tend to have breathing problems as your pulmonary uh, 
your lungs start to dry out. This is common. This is dehydration. What we're seeing all the time is dehydration. When you're breathing in freaking hot, dry air, you get a cough, don't you? I do. I get a cough every winter. I have one right now. Because I'm in dry-ass weather. That's just it. Translate that over to a skink and an animal that lives in the tropics. makes a lot of sense that they have issues coming from, and then you're putting them in a tank, which has no humidity at all, putting, blasting them with all kind of UVB rays and, and, and any other thing you like to put on top of your tank and under tank heater and everything else in a 60-degree room, and you expect nothing to happen? Just <laughs> you're putting it in a, you're, you know, you're putting yeah. it in a situation that's not natural, that's not optimal for the animal. And as a result, things happen. So they're, you know, they're, uh, they get stressed, which, which causes uh, their immune system to drop, just like we see in any other animal, in, in, you know, in pythons or whatever, and that results in a sickness, oftentimes bacterial, right? Optim- optim- uh-huh. Opportunistic bacteria or fungus takes over, and this is what you get. Um, I find the best treatment for this is fixing husbandry. That is the number one treatment. Unless husbandry is fixed, no amount of batril, no amount of injections, no amount of anything is going to help your animal. You need to fix mm-hmm. your problems. If you're too stubborn to do it, then you're never going to have a, a, a safe animal. I've seen people who cannot get, get away from having their display tank in their living room, refuse to believe that their animal would do better in a rack. Refuse to believe that their animal would do better in a tub scenario, at least temporarily, until they fix this giant cage that is like the desert when it really should look like Indonesia. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. Because the they refuse, because a, they're stubborn, yeah. because they're being right. stubborn about it. And then they go to their vet, and guess what their vet says? You're doing everything right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Crap. You're, what? You have a 110 degree hotspot? That's perfect. You know why? Because the vet thinks that they're dealing with bearded dragons. Right. Or monitors. Or monitors, yeah. I've been to a vet where I told them I had a blue tongue skin, and they gave me a care sheet for bearded dragons saying it's the same thing. I kid you not. Wow. Wow. So you combine all this together, and you can see why people have problems. It's really not their fault. It's really not their fault. Like, that's why I'm never the one to quickly judge on somebody, you know? Right. But don't do it. And it's, it's a lot of misinformation. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you want to be like, you idiot. Like, what do you, like, you know, sometimes you want to be like, what are you doing? You know? Breathe, and damn it. Yeah. I've promised myself at least once a day I will go on these on these groups and I will answer one silly question. Just one. <laughs> and that way I feel like I did my duty and I, I can ignore the others. I, I've tried. And that's it, because sometimes it can be so overwhelming. It's the same issues over and over and over again. Uh, his eyes are dried out. Uh, I have a bad shed. Uh, I don't understand why his nose is crinkly. Oh, I don't understand why he's always wall surfing. Oh, I don't understand why he's why he's having bad poops or he's not eating. Why he's not eating his salad? It's like it's the same issues over and over, and 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 it's because of the bad information that's out there. So I try to be right. very understanding of that, you know. So I think the mystery illness is just that. It's just 
um, a result of bad husbandry for whatever period of time. It could be only over. It could be only a few days where this animal transported from you, you know, from wherever you got it from to you. That this could have happened, and then it comes with you know bubbly eyes or something. It's what yeah. we would describe as an RI. It doesn't really manifest itself the same in in a lizard that can open its mouth and lick and and is a little more active than it does in a snake, which just tends to just collect mucus in the mouth, you know, it's just different. Right. But it's pretty much the same thing. So when I got these skinks in, this group of four, they were horrendous. One had a giant cyst under its chin. All four of them were malnourished. Two of the four had mites, Ugh. which is not good. Now, oh, you I, said the bad I, word. Yeah, I did say the bad <laughs> word. And you know what's funny? You know what's funny? Like two years ago? If somebody would have said the word mice, I would be itchy. I would be, like, freaking out. It's so funny. Because, like, once you understand that, uh, yes, you know, if you imp- you get an import animal, you're going to have to deal with them. And, yes, if they're easy to deal with if you know what you're doing, then they're not uh-huh. as scary. They're not as scary. I prepared for this. I had a whole separate room away from my reptile room in two holes yeah. up, like, where I knew I was going to have to quarantine these animals for, which ended up being a year. But, oh. yeah. So I got rid of the mites within a few weeks. They're easy with blue tongues. Mites are going to sit in the blue tongues' ears. That's the number one place to hide is in the ears. They really can't get much of a good grip, especially on young animals, anywhere else because scales on blue tongues sit very snug to the body. So it's it's hard for the for the mites to dig underneath the scales and get to the flesh, just like they do with snakes. Snakes have very pliable scales, so they go right under Skinks, not so much. They usually aim for the ears. So the first thing I do is when I get a new imported animal is there's something called reptile relief. You can get it at most pet coats. Some pet smarts will have it. And it's a topical uh, spray that kills mites on, in, on, on contact, and it will not hurt your animal. And what I do is I put the thing underwater. Uh, I hold the skink in the sink with, you know, with the running water, wash the skink off, and then I spray directly in the ears, hmm. right in. Don't get it in their eyes. It will irritate their eyes. But spray it right in their little ears and just let it sit there and then rub it into the ears. Within minutes, you will either see mites on your thumb or on your fingers, or you do not have mites, generally speaking. Because <laughs> if they're going to be anywhere, they're going to be in the ears, and that stuff will kill them instantly. So if you start seeing stuff coming out their ears, then you know, shit, this thing has mites. And at that yeah. point, I mean, you should quarantine either way, but I usually do that treatment when I first get an animal. If they show no signs of mice, I do that treatment again a week later, still no signs. Mm-hmm. I do that treatment a week later, and then whatever quarantine period I feel, and I do it one more time just to check before I put them in my room. This is necessary. I've been seeing a lot of mite cases in blue tongues recently. And it's because of all these imports that are coming in that are cheap that people are buying. And as a result, they don't even think that a stink could get a snake mite. They don't even think that's a thing. But unlike a bearded dragon, which doesn't really get mites, or uh, you know a gecko, which doesn't get mites, blue tongues will get mites because they have scales like a snake. So you have to understand that, and you have to treat them and quarantine them appropriately, or you will have a problem. Right. Because you'll think, oh, because you'll do a whole rundown of the animal, almost totally clear, but you have not looked deep into their ear, and you don't know that there's some mites sitting. So it's best to be safe and sorry. So that's the first thing. 
there's like three steps when it comes to quarantining an animal. The first thing is to stabilize that animal. What that means is you have to get that thing to survive till the next day. Stabilize it. If it's dehydrated, hydrate it. If it's malnourished, feed it. Get it to the optimal temperature. Fix it. You have to stabilize yeah. it. After you stabilize the animal and it's eating and it's doing good, your next task, while you're stabilizing the animal, this should be your task too, is to get rid of any external parasites. Get rid of them. Do what you can. Get rid of them. And then your final step is to get rid of internal parasites. So the three-step process before I enter any animal into my room. And, you know, it's just, it keeps me sane um, and it keeps my collection safe and that's what's important. And um, because these things are coming from the wild, you don't know what disease, what bacteria, what parasite they can have in them, you know, you have no idea. And it's important for the safety of your animals to take care of these things. And quarantine, quarantine, quarantine. Quarantine is very simple. Paper, simple tub setup. That's it. Spray it down with preventamite. The whole nine. Simple setup for at least the first few weeks. As soon as soon as you realize, as soon as you can rule out mites, then you can throw in bedding in there. You can do it up. But until then, you got to be very sterile in order for you to be careful and not spread mites all throughout your house. Because can you imagine you put that little skink? in a thing of cypress mulch, and now the mites just are totally all over that mulch, and now you have to yeah. somehow get that mulch from oh, the God, one side of your house to the outside yeah. without dropping any? Impossible. Yeah, no. Yeah. Impossible. Use nope. paper. And this is the other issue, though, too, because you're using paper, and now the thing is not sitting in humidity, you know, and you're exacerbating the issue. So what I do is daily soaks. I was doing daily mm-hmm. soaks, and for some of them, they were so bad I had to do a, a, a syringe full of uh, b- baby tur- uh, turkey food, like um, like baby food, like turkey baby variety. Food. Yeah. Yeah, and sweet potato food, uh, baby food, because it's, it's high in sugar and that will give them some uh, energy. And I would use a, a syringe and get it in their mouth because they would not eat because they were that bad off. Mm-hmm. Between that and soaks and everything else, it was crazy. I saw it all with these animals. I saw kinks. Kinks are the first sign of metabolic bone disease is kinks. Oh. They will usually happen in the tail. And, you know, some people are like, oh, that's not metabolic bone disease because its its jaw doesn't get soft because that's what happens in, in bearded dragons. The jaw gets soft. That's probably mm-hmm. the first thing that happens. That's not the case with blue The first thing that happens is tail kinks usually, and then you'll have back kinks and things like that. Um, tail kinks are very common in, in, uh, in Australian animals, and that's because of the brumation thing, which we're probably not even going to be able to touch on. But anyway, um, we're going to do a round two next year. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> um, but anyway, I saw kinks, and, and the, re- the reason why is because of mal, uh, because they were so malnourished that they weren't given the calcium. I mean, I don't even know what they did with these animals. To me, it looked like they were born, they were they were shipped around for a while, for a few weeks, before they even got to me because there was, I never seen a newborn animal that was emaciated. You know what I mean? Like skin and bone. Mm-hmm. It was, it's, you know, the size of a newborn. Like, that doesn't even make sense. I was like, no. wow, this thing probably never saw a meal in his life. 
So as a result, I got some kinks. I was able to get rid of those kinks through good food and everything as the thing grew up, and I was fine. But these are the things I saw. And so you got to be careful. Good food, stabilize the animal, daily hydration, get rid of the mites, then internal parasites. Now, I'm the kind of guy that has a different view on internal parasites than other people. I don't believe there's a squeaky clean animal. I don't think it exists. I don't think that there's any reptile in captivity that doesn't have at least one parasite living in its gut. I don't think so. Yeah. I think we'll be kind of ignorant to think that that's the case. It's not the case. Mm-hmm. We have parasites living in our gut. I doubt that they don't. Now, what ends up happening is when you have a stressed out animal and you do all this to it, those parasites are able to get a foothold and take over. And that's why, because if parasites were that bad, then every animal in the wild would be dead. Why is it that animals could survive in the wild with parasite loads but not in captivity? The difference is the stress. The stress is a difference. If you reduce the stress down, then you could get those parasite levels back down in the gut. Ultimately, you could do that by giving them, you know, helping the system along by giving them meds and stuff like that. But unless that stress level is down, those parasites are going to continue to have a foothold. You're never going to get rid of them. I don't think it's even possible really to get rid of most stuff, to be honest. But even my vet says parasite loads, as long as they're not on a high load, are totally normal. And so what I did was establish a good feeding regime, feed them, and I use this new product. I don't know. Let me see. I don't have it here. It's this herbal supplement. Um, uh, Reptile Basic sells it, and it's it's this herbal mixture powder that um, tends to, that makes the gut um, inhospitable for parasites. It doesn't kill parasites outright, but it makes them hard for them to continue their process. And so essentially, it's a it's a softer way to deparasitize or at least stabilize your animal without shooting them up or, you know, feeding them, too feeding them crazy amount of meds. Um, it's like a right. nice, less abrasive way. And to me, it was a better idea because these animals are so stressed out and so high-strung that if I would pick them up every day to shove a tube down their throat or, tub, tub, you know, shove a syringe down their throat and send them these meds, which wipe out all the gut flora in their stomachs, not just the bad stuff, but everything, then I'm going to exacerbate the issue. Mm-hmm. So I went with this stuff that was not as bad, and it slowly cleared them out until I saw that their stools started getting nice and solid and fine, and now they've been fine ever since. Um, I do have my own microscope. I looked at the poop. I can do that at my house. Luckily, I was smart enough to get one of those and learn how to use it. And I looked at it, and nothing out of ordinary, nothing too crazy. Yeah. Okay. I'm good. I'm good. You know, I'm I'm good. I I just gotta be careful. You know, I don't do I don't clean poop and then go lick my fingers. You shouldn't be doing that anyway. You know, you shouldn't clean poop and then go change water <laughs> bowls yeah. in chondros. Like, yeah. You shouldn't be doing that anyway. You yeah. know, if you follow simple hygiene, there's no reason why you should have a problem. I've actually started it. using gloves. Yep, I do gloves. gloves as well. Yeah. I do yeah. gloves as well. I don't do gloves for the snakes so much as because it's usually just paper. But like mm-hmm. the blue tongues, the blue tongues because I spot spot clean. You know, I have to handle the shit. It's not like I can just lift the paper. So I put gloves on. 
you know? Right. And, and, and then I go, you know, I'll do, like, a group. Like, if the group came together, then I know whatever they have, they would all have it. And so I just kind of go and then change gloves throughout the group, you know? Like, I'll do my keys all one with all the same glove or, you know, and stuff like that. Do the snakes in a different. And it's all about hygiene and understanding how to do that. Um, but as long as you get the stressors down, internal uh-huh. parasites, provided not something crazy, but simple pinworms, simple things like that are not going to kill your animal. Can they get out of control? Absolutely. But it's important to understand which parasites are okay and benign, essentially, and which parasites are life-threatening. Cryptosomonium is, is, is life-threatening. No, the crypto. The animal is going to be dead. There's no doubt about oh, it. God. But pinworms, eh, pinworms. You know, if your animal goes through stress, its poop may be a little soft for a little while because its pinworms, you know, became an issue. But these are things that, you know, it's, they're almost impossible to get rid of because of how, you know, the, the life cycle of the animals, and you just have to deal with it when it comes up. But uh-huh. this idea of squeaky clean, parasite-free animals, it just doesn't exist. It just doesn't <laughs> exist. Just it doesn't exist. Just- just another reptile misconception. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Oh, my God. So I took my, my thing in and it says that's pinworms. Like, yeah, probably. <laughs> sounds right. Yeah. I got to get well, rid of them. Well, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> so is is the animal symptomatic? You know, is the animal having problems pooping? Is it pooping mm-hmm. blood? No, it's not. Is the stool even soft? No, it isn't. Perfectly fine. But you're still gonna shove medicine down its throat. Eh. Second, think that one, buddy. Like, just think about what you're doing because you could be doing again more harm than good because you feel what you think is right and what is more natural for the animal, what's optimal for the animal. Right. And I guess that's the one thing. I guess everybody, if you can take something away from my rambling for the last two hours, is that remember where these animals come from. Do your own research. Now, bluetoothstage.net has a great care sheet on there. I personally, not to bash it, but personally, some of the things I don't agree with, some of the things on there is a little outdated. I know they're currently doing things to, to change the, um, the care sheet to include different ideas, which I think will be a good thing, because right now it just seems like these ideas have been around for a long time, so maybe they freshen it up, update it, which will be great. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anybody should leave one care sheet there's nothing else. This is it. You know, do your own research. Listen to what I say. Don't listen to what I say as gospel either. Listen to other breeders. Talk to other breeders. Talk to Australian guys. I'm sure the Australian guys think I'm an idiot. I'm sure. That's fine. You know, go out there and ask people different things so you can get a better understanding of what to do and then do your own thing in your own home that's best suited for you and then your animal. Right. Don't listen to one care sheet and then that's it. That's where people go wrong. And definitely get a new vet if she tells you your bearded dragon is the same <laughs> as your blue dog. <laughs> uh, it's not going to work. Yeah. Please. Please. So we definitely will have research. to do Yeah, we'll Another definitely one. have to do a follow-up show, but before we uh, you know, this is this is your first year uh uh, at attempting to breed these guys. So I wanted to yeah. throw out, you know, what your projects are um, that you're that you're going to be working with. Not necessarily how you're going to breed them, because I, I think that would probably take up too much time, but just 
what your projects are? Well, I'm pretty much up to what I hope to be pairing this year. Um, um, I haven't paired yet. And I know a lot of people are like, you bring Indo stuff, you're not pairing yet? And I know most people who breed Indonesian stuff have paired already and are pretty much done with their breeding. Um, but usually the breeding season starts at the start of your cool down, and I have not cooled down yet. So, you know, it just I haven't cooled down, so my males are not even in breeding mode, so it's definitely not the time. Um, so I'm not too worried about it. Uh, as soon as I start cooling down, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to see a lot of breeding activity, and that's when I'll breed. But um, in saying that, I have a pair of Marukes, really nice female, um, that I got um, a few months ago, not too, not too, not too uh, far ago, which, which is why I'm a little concerned because you know she's just kind of established in the high, in, in the in the room and everything. But I'm gonna right. try. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go for it. Um, snakes where you get a lot of egg bounding or something like that for those girls, where they have too much complications. Generally, either they slug out or you know, or produce some viable young. So I'm hoping that um, she'll do fine. I'm pretty sure she will. She is about, I think she's about three years old. She's going to be or at least two and a half. Uh, she was bred last year at 18 months and didn't produce anything. She They had lockups with her, but didn't produce anything. Um, so I'm hoping um, that I would have better luck this year, uh, being that she'll be a year older. Most blue tongues mature about two years old, females, and males are about one year old. So males can have a pretty quick turnaround. But females need to be a little bit older. So I'm thinking she'll be ready this year. She's definitely have the weight, let me tell you. So, you know, <laughs> she should be fine. She should be ready to go. I actually slimmed her down a bit when I got her because um, I thought she would make me a little too big. But uh, the male, I plan on – She actually, she was produced by Sue B. If anybody knows who Sue B is, I'm sure anybody who's listening in the Blue Tone <laughs> world knows who Sue B is. She's the person who is producing the most Marukes in the country. And to be honest, the best Marukes in the world, in my opinion. Phenomenal mm-hmm. project she's got going on. She's producing some of the nicest high orange animals I've ever seen. Drop dead gorgeous, stunning, incredible animals. And she's been producing quite a lot. Three years ago, I believe she produced this female. It was sold to uh, David. Um, and he then sold it to me last year because he just has way too many females. So he had to let one go. And I'm pairing her with my male named Don. And Don is a really unique-looking Maruk. He has a lot of cream on his back, very faded-out back pattern, almost no black on his body at all. Even what would be black is really a dark brown. Like, he's almost a hypo, beautiful animal. He's going to be going with her. If he doesn't get it done... I have another male winning the wings. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, backup boys. Yeah, I got backup, backup boys. boys. Yeah. Which is, which is who I who I like to call Hamburg because he was my Hamburg steal. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. You're a little baby I bought last year at Hamburg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember that little that little shit, that little thing you guys are like, really? You bought that thing? Yeah. Well, phenomenal. <laughs> We saw it he for looks, like one second, and then you were like staring at it the entire show. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I picked him up. About him. I picked yeah. him up off some jobber's table. He was a newborn, <laughs> and uh, I was hoping it was going to be a female. It turned out to be a male, like a big, bulky, huge head on him. Yeah, he's a huge male, and um, he's going to be 
screen with her if Don doesn't get it done. But Don is quite a horny little bastard, so I'm pretty sure he's going <laughs> to... I'm pretty sure he's going to get it done. I'm not too worried about that. I'm just worried that, you know, hopefully she doesn't kill him. Yeah. Beyond yeah. that... So that's the Maroon. That my key islands... Uh, I'm going to try, but I'm not holding my breath. Key islands are very hard to breed. Um, I do have two females that are, I've had for a few years now. They definitely have size. You know, they have that really fat girl, which I don't expect anything from, and have another girl. Um, mm-hmm. I just worry about the males I do have are only a year old and are quite a bit smaller than the two females I do have, um, which is not going to be the worst thing when it comes to snakes, but when it comes to when it comes to blue tongues, which either they're loving each other or killing each other, you can see mm-hmm. how that could be a problem. Um, yeah, I don't want her to. I don't want one of the females to turn around and just break his neck. So you got to be very careful about that stuff. So I will try that, but I'm not going to try them anytime soon. I'm going to wait till the cool down is well underway, and then I'll just cross my fingers, put them together, and watch like a madman, kind of like what you do with olives. Yeah, just kind of stare and hope <laughs> to God that nothing bad happens. Yeah, please, no. like, please, look out! No. Don't kill him! Please, look out! kill him! Please don't kill him! Please, please don't kill please him! Don't kill him. Please don't kill him, and please don't piss her off. She's much bigger than you. The first cage you go into, look, when you come home, and you're like, oh, my God, is it still two? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking at you like, what? And it's like, okay, all right, I'll be back later. So, yeah, you know. (laughs) So, so the best, yeah, so the best shot I got is with the Marooks. And, listen, if I produce a litter of Marooks this year, I'll be, you know, super ecstatic. Super ecstatic. Like that that would be it for me. I would be incredibly excited and um you know, I'd probably never sell one, so good luck people. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, not gonna happen. <laughs> now I'm gonna pull I'm gonna pull Eric and that's it. I'm gonna have to set up a new rack. It's just gonna yep. that's it. <laughs> Hold on to him, bro. Yeah. Hold on to him, that's it. You know. So I'm excited. I am so excited. So I'm hoping they pan out. Cool. Yeah, man. Yeah, I will be. Mm-hmm. And if I get condos this year, forget it. <laughs> that's. I got a big year. I got a big year this year. Man. Yeah, you got a lot of things happening. You got any uh, IJs going on this year? Nope, not this year, man. I'll tell you no. what. I thought about. I thought about a few girls, but then I was looking at it. I was like, Oh crap! Pretty season is already here. You know. Yeah. And these girls, like, I haven't. I haven't been feeding up too much, and right. Like. <clears throat> And I was kind of making a decision like last month, but by then it was too late. And I was uh-huh. like, shit. And then you have to think about Audrey. They breed early. It's like, it's not even if I started feeding her last month like crazy up until now that I would hope, you know, I would have to feed her now into all of December and then try to pair her in January. And at that point, it's going to be past. Mm-hmm. It sense to try to push it, you know, so. Right, yeah. Yeah, and and with me working with the Condros, I have another. I have a coastal pairing I'm doing this year, and me working with the uh, with the blue tongues. I was like, eh, maybe it would be a better idea just to do one coastal pairing. I already have all these carpets for sale anyway. Doesn't make sense to kind of. And I'm in no rush, dude. You know, like, yeah. I'm not chasing something. You know, so. Right. Right. Well, no, not this cool. year, man. Believe me, it it, it sucks because I would love to, but not this year. All right, well. If you need a bunch of gently used acrylics, I know where I can provide you with some. 
gently used my ass. You busted that line. <laughs> no, 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 they're gently used. Yeah, yeah remember, Owen, we have, uh, I, we I have broke, traveled with you to various shows. All right? I, used, <laughs> I was very gentle with the needle nose pliers. Be fine. Yeah, all right. You were gentle with those. Man, you threw around those acrylics, man. That was crazy. No, I beat the shit out of them. But every time anyway. he'd be throwing it in the back of the truck, like, what are you doing, man? I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. I'm out. Yeah. Eric's like Eric's like pulling out the red carpet, getting his white gloves out, gently, <laughs> gently moving things. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was. I had, on his. I had. I had this vision, Owen, when you sent me that message on Saturday. This vision of somebody walking up to the table, and they want like one carpet in the row of uh, yeah. acrylics, and you say basically, no. You can't have just one. You buy the whole row. You have to buy the you entire the whole row, row. And you go. Because <laughs> I would break off another one. That almost happened. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it, there's a wait. There's a lock for every tier, though, right? Oh my god. Well, yeah. Well, each individual tier has the locking bar that locks all of the uh, oh. everybody. So yeah, I had That's to. What I'm saying. You had to sell yeah. the whole tier. It's the whole tier. I, I would have had to sell the entire tier. So yeah. But I only want yeah. that one snake. No, you don't. Don't care. No, you don't. <laughs> you want them all. Yeah. Owen Juice and Jedi mind tricks on people. Damn right no, you I want am. the whole bus. Thank <laughs> I ever had. Sold all uh, of them. Yep. At uh, noon. So. Nice. Okay. Anyway. All right. So, Zach, where do we follow you at? Uh, how can uh, people see what's going on with you? Um and your reptiles. Bug you about skinks. Yeah, um, you can you can contact me. Well, I'm on Facebook. You know that, but um, mm-hmm. you can contact me at Zach Baez. It's pretty probably the easiest thing. You just message me on there. The thing is, is like I'm getting a little selective about friend requests just because of the craziness that's been going on on Facebook. It's kind of mm-hmm. wild out there, man. I'm like almost over it. <laughs> it's just too much, <laughs> man. I'm almost pulling to Eric. I'm almost like, you know what? I'm out. I'm, I'm out. Go. Eric was right. I'm out. And, uh, I'm always there. It's getting. It's just getting silly. I. I don't even. Uh, anyway. So, but you can contact me on there. But I would prefer most people to contact me through Dark Side Exotics, just so I can kind of like separate a little bit, you know. So, right. at least organize some messages a little bit. Um, Mm-hmm. If you contact me, Dark Side. Oh, you can contact me wherever, but um, Dark Side is preferred if you can. So it's Dark Side is two words, and uh, yeah, I'm posting stuff up there as much as I can, and you can see all the animals I'm doing and parents I'm doing, and check out the craziness that is over here. So mm-hmm. that's it. Uh, and I don't not that plans to go to any shows recently, so uh, that's <laughs> it. And by the way, we got it. We us. We gotta hang out soon. Us Python yes. Posse, Philly. We haven't yeah. hung out in a while. We gotta have to I know. That. Well, I, I tried. I tried to make that happen. What a month ago, and only Owen showed up. So damn right, <laughs> but Owen showed up. Yeah, but you told everybody a week before. Like you're like, uh, just yeah, you gotta plan uh, this shit. Like, you gotta plan this shit. You know we're busy people. No man, you know? I'm trying to I'm trying to fit into you young guys where you just like do things on a whim, man. There's no planning you involved. Yolo, you just yolo, <laughs> yolo. 
What's wrong with Eric when you trying to YOLO Listen, you have to understand, like Matt, Matt, is probably, Matt is probably 100 feet in the air somewhere on a billboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm probably yeah. on a ladder in my showroom. You know what right. I mean? you got to understand, things yeah. are going down. It's a busy season, but <laughs> yeah. we'll make it happen. We'll yeah, we will. For sure. Absolutely. Because, you know, I'm working on that logo of yours. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we have the... <laughs> After next week's show, we have two weeks off. So, I mean, like... Yeah, I kind of have to get it done soon, don't I? Yeah. 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 And, so we but, we will know, have, uh, what, two weeks that we will be able to... We'll, we'll be able to squeeze a day. We'll be able to plan things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. i tell you what. Did I just let the cat out of the bag or what? Oh, what, the new the logo? logo? Yeah. yeah, I could have sworn we've done that before, but if not, no, I don't think right. we did. I don't think we did. But no. if anybody's still <laughs> listening to this rambling, then they must be diehard fans. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and you deserve to know. The, you deserve, uh, deserve to know. Yeah. You deserve to know. So, with, so with that, I want to thank the listeners and uh, hope I didn't ramble too much and you uh, survived through this crazy two hours of of um, rambling. So, um, that's it, man. Thanks, guys, for having me on, and hope I answer some questions and. Maybe we Absolutely. can finish it up next time, but, you know, I told you, it was going to be rough. Well, I have to cover. <laughs> nah, nah. Ah, Good yeah. job, man. Good job. We'll get around to in 2016 at some point. Hopefully, maybe after right, you bro. produce some Marooks, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah, because then I can actually talk about breathing like I know something, right? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. All right, man. I'll let you All guys right. go. All, All right. right. Thanks, Zach. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, so in, um, we were hoping in the upcoming, uh, start of the new, uh, quote unquote year for us or season or however you want to put it, we're going to, uh, be unveiling a new logo, which would be, uh, pretty cool. Uh, kind of, kind of go along with our new, uh, you know, the new season and the new, uh, I guess I don't, I don't I don't know if you would say we're changing things all that drastically but um just uh you know hitting on some species just like we did tonight blue tongue skink so hopefully mm-hmm. you guys got uh something out of it for some reason I don't think Owen is going to be running out and buying blue tongue skinks anytime soon No I'm sorry <laughs> Yeah but that's okay yeah. that's okay yeah. um uh, you know, us snake guys are, are are hard to venture into the lizard world, but I think that uh um the uh the blue tongue skinks are a good uh stepping point. Um definitely like to have some more shows about uh some monitors and stuff because uh they're they're equally as cool. So hopefully uh in twenty sixteen we'll get some uh some monitor talk. Uh, maybe some Ackies and some Sweet. Spanish. It'd be cool to do a show on Parentes, huh? That, yeah, it would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like the yeah, uh, the, the ultimate. Our, our, our Australian buddies are torturing me hardcore right now because they're right in the middle of their hatching season, but then they're also like, oh, my God, look at all these silver peppered inlands and my lace monitor. And what's this? A per- I'm like, stop it. Just stop <laughs> it. And it's like, uh friend all of you and I'll pop back in later but yeah that would be yeah. cool but you're right it's like we have one more show and then, then then we're done for the year yep 
One more show. One uh, more. Uh... Calendar's coming soon, guys. Please stop messaging me. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. When and I she, know, you'll know. Damn it. <laughs> so. Yeah. If if you are uh, any are you friends of either me or Owen or are on the uh, Facebook group page or Morelia Pick of the Week, as soon as they are pulled out of the envelope at my house, I will be taking a picture of them and saying they are here. So we'll let you know. Fear not. So hopefully, uh, you know, like I said, they should be should be sometime this week. Soon, um, yeah, yeah. So we'll, I'm sure we'll with the announcement on air for at the next show if they're here. So. Yeah, the holiday season. Uh, like I said, we uh, we waited too long this Damn year. <laughs> we, yeah. we never we never seem to never do it right <laughs> correctly. Yeah. Um, but uh, we. Uh, the, the, I guess with the the shipping of everything right now, it just kind of makes mm-hmm. it uh, slow you know, down. Difficult. Yeah. So. Yeah. But fear not, they'll be here, and they will will be pretty awesome, I'm sure. Um, yep. So, like Owen said, next week is the last show of the year. Um, it'll be the holiday show uh, that we do uh, every year. <laughs> We'll be drinking and uh, having a good old time. Um, maybe play some drinking games, some classic <laughs> rants. <laughs> uh, uh, who knows? Maybe even yeah. uh, Tom and uh, you know Jim will be uh, stopping in don't, and saying don't, hello. Don't say it, <laughs> it's like Beetlejuice. If you say it three times, he shows up. Three times, he shows up. That's <laughs> bad. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that will be uh, the last show of the season, and then uh, we won't be back until January. Um, and uh should be uh, should be should be a cool show next week. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, real quick, we'll go through uh, dot com. Um, check out the website if you want to email us. Info at MoreliaPythonRadio dot com is our email. Uh, give our Facebook page a like. You can follow us on Twitter. Um, uh, as far as uh, the show, you can listen to the show on um, iTunes uh, or whatever your app, podcast app of choice is. Um, you know, I think I, I, I'm not I'm not sure about this, but I think from from listening to other podcasts, if you go on and you review the show and like it, it kind of pushes mm. us up on uh, iTunes. So. That'd be pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Everybody should do that. Yeah. (laughs) Show show some love to the Morelia Fight Radio show. Um, Yeah, and uh, I can't I can't really think of anything else as far as Morelia Python Radio goes. Um, If you have uh, you know a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear, um, be sure to shoot that to us. And uh, we'll get that going. Um, I'm I'm trying to line up the guests for probably the first quarter of the year and get that all together mm-hmm. and try to have uh, you know a good plan on what's going on. So if you're if you're if you're really wanting to hear a topic or from a person, uh, be sure to uh, to send that over. Let us know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, as far as myself, ebmorelia.com. Uh, my email is Eric at ebmorelia. 
Uh, I finally have dusted off the camera and taken some pics. <laughs> that should uh, hopefully be happening a lot, uh, a lot more. Um, mm-hmm. You can check out my website uh, over on my uh, breeding diary uh, for updates on the 2016 season. Uh, if you're interested in any of those pairings or you know uh, anything that uh, catches your eye. Just shoot me a message and uh, I'll put you on the list so that way I kind of have an idea, you know, of of, of what's what. Um, as everybody knows, I'm a bit of a hoarder, so I hold on to things for quite a while. Um, mm. So uh, it's probably best to get on that kind of list because I really don't go out of my way to push things. Uh, so mm-hmm. if I know that you're interested in it, um, you know, then you probably have a better shot at uh, getting an animal from said pairing. So... Be sure to check that out. Um, and like I said, if you uh, my my shipping window is pretty much shut down, uh, so mm-hmm. I'm pretty much done. Um, if there is something that you're interested in, uh, you know, it's the time to do payment plans and stuff like that. I welcome that kind of stuff. So uh, you can always shoot me a message if there's an animal that you're interested in. We can sh- ship it once the spring comes around, or I'll probably be at Hamburg in February. What's it? February. February 27th, yep. Yeah, I usually yep. head out there with Owen. I usually don't vend, but, uh, you know, I'll be there so I can deliver animals and stuff. But I'll be unveiling my new displays, so you'll have to vend. I mean, they'll be classier now. Oh, so. that's, uh, oh now you're high-end. All right, all right, fair yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, com. You can follow me on Facebook, my Facebook page, ebmorelia, Twitter, and Instagram, all the above. <laughs> Um, and that's all I got. Go ahead, Owen. All right. You guys can go over to rogue-reptiles.com. Check out all the latest stuff we have in Rogue. You can also check on the updates page. I did finally post up the breeding schedule for this year. We have 25 pairings nice. of various <laughs> pythons and some colubrids. So if you see anything you like in there, feel free to drop me an email through the baby contact on the website to be put on any of the lists. And uh, just so everybody knows, if you do not see it on the list, I'm not breeding it. So don't ask me about other animals and thinking that I'm hiding things from you. I'm not. Um, you can also go on Facebook. You can look up Rogue Reptiles on Facebook.com. Give us a like over there. If you're on Facebook, we normally put ads for babies that are for sale up on Facebook. where we put them on King Snake and various other places and our own website. So you kind of get to see everything before. Uh, right now, the shipping window has also been shut down for me. That does not mean I won't hold on to an animal for you. If you pay for it in full, it can stay with me until it gets warmer. No problem, no charge. And I can deliver to uh, the Hamburg show on the 27th, and I believe there's some Habitat Grace and uh, White Plains or something sprinkled in there too. So there are other shows on the East Coast as well. That's all I got, and that's all we got for you guys tonight. So what we will say is thank you all for listening, and we're going to catch you all next week for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night. Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotic. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Marklin and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site 
bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit TheReptileReport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is... It's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for.